team and we are facilitating the work you will be doing today and tomorrow. So on behalf of CEI, welcome to this um, summit today. So we will have an opportunity for you all to learn about and meet some of the primary planners of your work for today and tomorrow and in here in just a second. And then if you wouldn't mind in the chat, putting, um, we'd love to, to know who's here, who you are. Um, and I think Rexy is going to offer a poll as one way that we can learn of the various uh, sectors of folks who are represented in our work today. In addition, if you'd like to put your name and organization, that would be great too. There's your poll. If you wouldn't mind just letting us know who you represent, what organization or sector, that would be wonderful. All right, if we could get a couple more of you to, to put in your primary affiliation on the poll, that would be great. And then we'll see who's here and then we'll get that out of the way. So it'll be off your screen. Nice mixture invited today. So thank you for being here. Okay, Rexy, if we could go ahead and close that poll. Thank you for that. You can see who your neighbors are. All right, so the folks who uh, worked on planning your days are here and I'd like to give them just a minute to introduce themselves and I'll call um, the organization and whoever's here to represent that organization can say hi. And then we'll end with Andy and you can take it from there, Andy. Okay, so um, justice matters. We have someone here from Justice Matters. Uh, I'm John Crable. I'm here from Justice Matters. Thanks, John. Mm -hmm. Housing Coalition. We have someone who's here representing the Housing Coalition that was working on our team to put this together. All right, I'll come back. How about from the city? Good morning, everybody. Uh, Brandon McGuire. I'm an assistant city manager with the city of Lawrence and very happy to be here. Thanks, Brandon. And the county. Good morning, Jill Jolliker, assistant county administrator for Douglas County. Thanks, Jill. Uh, Bert Bob Triansky, director of behavioral health projects for Douglas County. Thanks, Bob. Bert Nash. Matthew Falk, director of housing, Bert Nash Community Mental Health Center. Thank you, Matthew. And then uh, Andy with KDEX. Fun times. Okay, so I actually have a few other KDEX folks that are on the line. So if you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourself, please go ahead. Hello, everybody. I'm Charlie Bartlett. I'm uh, with KDEX and Director of Adult Services. Oh, I see you're on mute. 
I should know that by now, right? Melissa Bogart Starkey, staff, housing, employment, and benefits, program manager. Uh, and I'm, I'm Andy Brown. I'm the commissioner for behavioral health services at KDADS. Um, and I'm excited to have everybody here today. We um, feel like we've got really a, a, a neat opportunity right now to take advantage of um, federal funds that are coming into the state and help leverage um, additional federal funds that are coming into the city and the county um, as part of the uh, the Rescue Plan Act. And so today um, we'll get into like what our what our purpose is and everything. But I did just want to take a minute to thank everybody that's um, helped pull this together. We've pulled it together in a, a pretty short amount of time. And, um, you know, so I'm anticipating that things will go pretty smoothly because we've got, you know, expert facilitators with us today. But also, if there are any hiccups or um, issues, please just bear with us as we've been, um, you know, uh, very busy with, with everything that's been going on. But I do appreciate the fact that everybody's here today and um, is, has come to the table to help us um, sort of tackle this issue and topic. Um, we, we do think that um, there's a, a great opportunity in front of us um, if we can figure out a way to come together and, and um, address that as a community. And so I see, um, I see our goal for this summit really to try to come up with a, a framework that will connect um, all the activity that's happening in Lawrence already, but also to look at how we can work on addressing some of the areas where maybe we haven't been able to make as much progress or we might need additional um, investment or support. Um, obviously, it, KDADS, um, you know, our interest is particular to folks that have disabilities. Um, and with behavioral health services, we're specifically focused in on populations of um, severe and persistent uh, mental illness and substance use disorders. Um, so we'll be inviting some other folks to come and uh, talk to us today about um, what's going on with Kansas Housing Resource Programs. Um, and I'll, we'll be doing some overview of um, federal funds that might be touching other areas, um, for example, the, the school districts. So as we're looking at all that stuff, um, please just keep in mind that we still don't have a lot of information um, from the federal government about how many of these programs might roll out. Um, but we do think that we have enough information to share with you today that it can provide you with um, a good base of knowledge about what pockets of money are available and um, how we might be able to braid some of those together to um, really provide a, a a, a strong net of safety for, for individuals in, in Lawrence and Douglas County that might be suffering from um, homelessness or um, at-risk housing. Okay, so Seth, I'll turn it back over to you and Joyce. All right, so I want to reiterate and uh, checking this uh, with Andy and with everyone else gathered. So our understanding is that the goal of this work is to 
delineate a framework to connect all of the efforts that are happening uh, in Lawrence and Douglas County, to identify areas where more investment and support may be needed, and to provide information on funding that may be available and think about how to access it and braid it together moving forward. I'm looking for some head nods or some thumbs ups or some, okay. So um, when we all get distracted today and we all will get distracted today, let's come back and remember that those are the reasons that we're here together. My name is Seth Bate, uh, staff at the Community Engagement Institute. We're part of Wichita State University. I think most of you were on earlier when Joyce greeted you. Uh, our team has the opportunity to support your work today uh, with a little bit of technology, and that primarily today means RexiQ. Thank you for being part of the team, Rexy. And uh, some facilitation and note taking and order keeping. And that's going to be a revolving team, but it includes me and Joyce, whom you've met, and Carrie. Thanks for being here, Carrie. And you'll also see Megan and Zane popping in from time to time as part of our team. Um, I, I think all of you have been around people who've been in these facilitation roles before, so this won't surprise you. We're not here. Uh, as experts in your content or as people who've lived your experience, we're here to help you have more efficient, more effective, more productive conversations and to help you stay accountable to the goals that you have for this time. I am going to suggest a few ways of working together that we think will be important and we will help you support. One of those is to do your best to stay on topic. I know you all are multifaceted people in multifaceted organizations, and we're going to do our best to talk about one thing at a time. And um, we're going to recognize that that's going to require some grace as we go, because these issues are incredibly adaptive and um, multi-connected, right? But we're going to aim for staying on topic within the limits of these challenging topics. Um, we're going to suggest in moments where it's difficult to figure out who should speak next or if you should get in, if you are having any hesitance, please use the raise hand feature or use the chat. We don't ever want to lose an important comment or question or thought from you. Um, some of us are pretty natural in the online space and some of us still find it a little clunky. It's great at point, any point to come off mute, ask a question, answer a question. And uh, um, at the same time, if you uh, want to be called on or if you're afraid that you're getting left behind, use that feature to raise your hand and let us know you wanna speak and or use the chat. And uh, we're going to suggest that this is a space where we're going to need to honor and respect differing opinions and experiences. Um, we are not expecting that at 401 today, you will have absolute um, consensus on everything that you believe around these topics. And uh, I'm not sure that would be productive anyway. And we're going to ask that you assume that the people who are gathered here have positive intent and all come with their different experiences and those have shaped their opinions and perspectives. 
are there other things that we ought to consider as we work together today that would help you do your best work? Well, then let's make that a transition um, uh, and I'll acknowledge this next piece of work is as much for our team as it is for you. Uh, we know that the language that we use matters and we know that we're not all going to get all of the language right, uh, but we do wanna set ourselves up for some shared understanding of language related to housing and homelessness. Uh, and Carrie, I think you've got a resource to help us do that. Yes, I do. So um, on your screen, hopefully you should see the um, list. And uh, excuse me while I, I um, scroll up for a moment. Um, but these are common terms, phrases, and concepts. Um, and Rexy, if you wouldn't mind dropping that document in the chat as well, so folks can save a copy if they want. Um, these are some terms that we anticipate hearing today and also want to acknowledge that not everybody might be familiar with them. Not everybody speaks the jargon of, the, of this work who is here today. Um, so we wanted to share this with you and walk through. And um, Missy, if I'm not mistaken, I think you were going to help us um, walk through some of these terms. So if you let me know where to scroll on the page, I will navigate. So I say we just start from the top with the built for zero and kind of go through the list, if that's okay with everyone. Yep. So out of, out of curiosity, um, how many folks have been um, part of the built for zero effort locally? All right, so um, I think one of the things that um, that I wanted to highlight with Built for Zero is, is that there, there is a, um, a, a section of that that really kind of hones in and focuses on housing first. Um, and it, that is a, an area that's of particular interest to KDADS um, as it is designed to help address um, folks that have um, chronic homelessness and are experiencing um, serious mental illness or um, substance use disorders or, or even co-occurring issues. So um, that's an area of, of Built for Zero that we have a particular interest in. Um, and I'd be kind of curious to hear um, what other folks um, have to say about Built for Zero and um, maybe share what your experiences are around that. Could we have a few folks share some experiences? Uh, I guess I can, I can speak that uh, 
you know, we've just started this in the last year uh, at, uh, in Douglas County or over the last year in Douglas County. And uh, I, you know, I know that our team is pretty solid. We communicate pretty regularly about that. Um, but uh, experience-wise beyond that, we are still uh, creating our lists and trying to identify everyone that we can. And, oh, go ahead. No, please, Jill, go ahead. I would just offer that um, the city and the county um, entered into an agreement with the with Built for Zero with the intent that we would have a be able to take a systemic approach to understanding issues of homelessness in the community, um, and this the process that we've gone through has been true to that form. Um, we have under, gotten an understanding of where, how our system is set up, everything from the, um, the way that the Kansas, um, the balance of state for the COC, some of the terms that are in this document um, is set up and how um, our community lives within that framework um, and how we operate on a local level and how we support um, the systems locally to support um, folks that are experiencing homelessness in the community. Um, we're at the beginning stages of that, um, but it is a systems-based approach to understanding how we can be set up for a successful, um, to successfully serve folks experiencing homelessness and prevent homelessness, um, starting with what we can learn around ending chronic homelessness. We are focused on ending chronic homelessness by 2023 is our goal, but our, but the goal of this program is not to end homelessness. It is to make homelessness uh, less frequent and for shorter periods of time. But the goal of, our pro of the Built for Zero initiative is not to end homelessness. It is to end chronic homelessness as a starting point. And we hope to move on to learn more about uh, how we can um, look at our families um, experiencing homelessness in the community as well. But right now we really are digging into our chronic homeless population, whom I know many of the folks that have joined us today would agree is perhaps where we, sh where we should be focusing a lot of our efforts, but that, that's, I'll stop talking about it. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and, and Matthew, um, would you like to talk about functional zero and, and what the meaning behind that is? Sure. So the overall goal of Built for Zero is to re reach a, a point that's called functional zero. And functional zero, it differs from absolute zero in the sense that absolute zero would be that there would be no, no one in the community that's experiencing homelessness ever. Functional zero is that there are functionally no one who would enter into a state of homeless and who would stay there for a long period of time or for a period of time in which they would become chronically homeless. Um, so functional zero is that there's a system in place that provides expedited, um, quick, responsive services for people who, who are experiencing homelessness and is able to connect them with the resources they need to exit homelessness in a timely fashion. And so there's functionally at any given time no reason for anyone to remain or stay in a state of homelessness. 
Thank you. Um, and does anybody have a have a question about functional zero? Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. Um, Missy, do you want to talk about coordinated entry? So I can talk briefly about coordinated entry, but I think it's more is Tuck, Tuck is, David, are you on? Yeah, I think here. Um, so coordinated entry. Do you want to talk about? Sure, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Uh, coordinated entry is a system where we have uh, multiple access points throughout the community for people to be able to come into any place where they might be able to receive help. And uh, then from there, they can be referred to the coordinated entry system that then can figure out which is the best place in town to assist them, which, uh, which fund source is the best way to assist them, and then get them referred to that funding source or that service. So that, you know, if someone shows up at uh, say Catholic Charities, but they are fleeing domestic violence. There's a quick and easy door for them to be accessed to get access to, uh, say, Willow Domestic Violence Center. Um, you know, there, it's a it's a concept of there being no wrong door. Anybody can come in, and and will find the right service for you. Uh, it entails. Uh, meetings, multiple meetings a month. We usually meet every two weeks or so and uh, where we do case conferencing on people to figure out what the what the correct uh, referral so referral destination would be, um, as well as if they would be eligible for any of the various programs in, in town, such as rapid rehousing, homelessness prevention, things like that. Thank you, Tuck. Um, Shanae, I know you're on as well. Do you want to speak from the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition side? Yes, thank you. Um, so Tucker explained it pretty well. Um, so the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, we operate the system uh, statewide. Um, so the entire balance of states for the continuum of care, which includes 101 counties. Um, and it is pretty much what Tucker said about the key aspect of it is a referral system to match um, those experiencing homelessness or those at risk of homelessness um, to an appropriate program that has a availabilities at that moment in time to try to get them linked that, to that agency as quickly as possible. Um, another key aspect of coordinated entry is uh, the data and reporting system of it. Um, so we would be able to see how many people were successfully referred, successfully accepted. And then if they were accepted into a program, then how many of those actually achieved housing by the end of that, uh, uh, that program for that agency. Um, so we're able to dive deep to determine if the system is working, if we need to tweak it, um, because as you know, different regions have different needs, different counties has different um, needs than the rest of the state. So we're able to align that coordinated entry system specifically for that specific region. And uh, Douglas County is their own region 
Um, so we are able to work with Tucker to make the coordinated entry system work specifically for Douglas County. Thank you so much for that, Shanae, I appreciate it. And as far as KDAD's role in that, we actually have the contract with Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition and we work very closely with them since the COVID um, pandemic, we actually created a new referral source where if we have emergency crisis calls come in, then we do immediate referrals over to Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition and they will, they will assist with the VI spadat or screening and take the case. Okay, and then for diversion, um, diversion is something that, that comes up frequently in a lot of areas of human services. And um, uh, I feel like we wanted to just make sure that we had kind of a clear definition for everybody today that when we're talking about diversion for the summit, what we're really talking about is um, diverting people from homelessness um, and um, so this is the definition that we uh, wanted to share for that. And I wanted to just check and see if anybody had questions about how that reads or if, if everybody's clear on what we mean when we say diversion. Okay. And then, um, Mr. Actually, you know sorry, this is Renee. Mm -hmm. um, I did have a thing about, um, diversion. I think sometimes we encounter people who are in diversion who are also at risk of imminently losing their housing. Yep. Um, so they may be currently they may be currently housed or they may be already actually homeless. So I would just add that, and we just want to. That process is just about what can we do um, to preserve shelter and other um, homeless interventions that we provide through coordinated entry as really like um, a last resort. And so that's in the diversion process, what we're working through with clients is anything else that is safe for you. That is um, a viable option for re immediately remedying your homelessness or helping prevent it is important. And it preserves shelter and rapid rehousing as services of last resort. <laughs> That's a good point, Renee. Yeah, I just want to echo what Renee said. The diversion is actually diverting the uh, the household or the client from needing the shelter bed space because that's so limited. So looking for other options in order to get them diverted from shelter space on their way to housing or maintain housing. Yeah. Thank you. Make then, that edit to that to the definition. Yeah, and then Missy, do you want to just go over the the definition for homelessness, and then we can talk about those questions at the bottom. Sure. So homelessness, and we're just going to give you a broad definition right now, as you see on the screen. But you can actually link on to the hyperlink to get the actual HUD definition. And I can tell you that when I started in behavioral health, this was the hardest 
um, definition for me to fully wrap my head around. And the main reason is because Social Security has one definition of homelessness, Department of Corrections has a definition of homelessness, KDADS has a definition of homelessness. Prior to us coming on, um, we have now and are now aligning with HUD's definition of homelessness so that we can try to inform the providers and keep in touch with the providers and give the consumers eligibility processes that they can follow. Because I think that's a really hard thing. Lots of times when you're a consumer, you're homeless, you're living on the streets, you're struggling every day, and you try to reach out to a provider and get help and you don't meet the definition of homelessness is really confusing. So I think that the homelessness definition for HUD and chronic homelessness definitions are really important for us to be able to share with the consumers and consumers' families. And I work with the providers on a regular basis regarding this. Um, homelessness often is defined by different, differently depending upon the organization providing the definition. Lack of stable and appropriate housing can look several ways living on the street, moving between temporary shelters, friends, families, emergency shelters, living in a private boarding house without a private bathroom or 10-year security. What does it mean to the community and what does it mean to the funders? And those are questions I'd send back to the audience. Um, does anybody have anything that they wanna share about um, the the definitions that the city and the county are using. Um, I just want to thank you for posing those questions of what does it mean to the community and what does it mean to the funders. I think that those are really great um, questions for us to consider um, because there are situations that people find their community members in that they believe are you know that are untenable and are. Um, uh, yeah, that are dangerous situations, but don't look like uh, from a certain point of service delivery, um, a homeless situation. So just, I, I think that's a good way to frame it. Okay, so then we'll just move on to chronic homelessness. People who have experienced homelessness for at least a year or repeatedly while also struggling with a disabling condition such as severe mental illness, substance use, physical disabilities, normally as a single individual or head of household. And underneath that, they have some statistics from NAMI, as well as the hyperlink to HUD's definition of chronic homelessness. And so, um, Jill, I think you spoke a little bit about this earlier, about the focus on chronic homelessness. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how the, the city and the county are approaching that as a definition? Maybe not. Okay. So, um, 
so what I what I'm wondering maybe um, um, Matt would you be able to kind of address that like how the um, built per zero is addressing chronic homelessness as a definition? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's a, for all intents and purposes, that is the definition that we're using. I, 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 the caveat being is that um, whether they have a disabling condition or not in the, in the form of uh, like they're receiving disability or they've had some kind of official diagnosis or anything like that is not something that we're going to, you know, that's not the priority. The priority is that folks who have been in that condition for a long period of time, um, so the, the time length is really the priority and in, in how we're utilizing that definition and how we're applying that locally. Okay. Um, so then do we want to move on to the sheltered versus unsheltered definitions? And I think those are pretty straightforward, but I just wanted to kind of check in and make sure that everybody was on the same page with that. If those terms come up and you hear those terms today, um, really what we're referring to is the, the difference between people that are um, in temporary shelter versus um, in places that aren't meant for human habitation. And then the next one is something that um, I'll talk a lot, you'll probably hear me say braided funding about 500 times between now and the end of the summit. But um, when we talk about braiding versus blending, um, with braiding, we're talking about coordinating multiple funding sources, um, but all of that is tracked separately for reporting purposes. Whereas when you blend funds, it combines the funding together um, and that it's not separately tracked, right, is the main. I, mean, I think it's so important that you share that because I come from more the programming and funding mm -hmm. side than the case management or social services aspect. And to me, it does often come up as a barrier when you're trying to explain why you can't just spend that money however and why you can't just pool it with something else. So it's and especially if we're seeking funding or we're looking at a collaborative effort, we have to be very mindful of how you pool that money, how you track that money, how you report it, how we use it. Um, and it is, you know, if we do this as a collaborative effort, we're going to have both of those. We're going to have blending, we're going to have braiding. It's going to depend on the funder, it's going to depend on the project, it's going to depend on the outcome. So uh, I know. I am not, you know, I have Shanae, thank goodness, who's a, a, an amazing case manager and understands coordinated entry, and I'm more on the top end of the program level, but it is just as important as what we do because it does secure the funding going forward. No funding, no help. So we, you know, it's a, it's a, a balancing scale of making sure that you're being uh, mindful of how you use your funding, how you solicit it, how you report it, because that ensures your funding stream and ensures that we have funding for services. So even though it seems redundant to repeat it, unless you're coming from the funding side like I am, it is not just common knowledge. It's not just a general understanding. So I appreciate you taking time to do that because sometimes I spend a lot of time trying to explain that, um, you know, from the funding side that, yeah, we want to get the money. However, there's rules and there's guidelines and we have things that we do, even if what we know is best way to use the money is not necessarily how we're going to get it or what it looks like 
reporting back. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and and so when we when we talk about braiding funding, um, you know, one of the one of the examples I often use is how um, school districts are funded, right? Because a lot of folks at, at the local level tend to be familiar with school districts, but it's it's almost like um, if if you're trying to fund a large program, right, that's going to provide a lot of services to different populations or different, you know, maybe different levels of definition, those kinds of things. Um, oftentimes the, that money comes in, in buckets, right? And you might have five or six different buckets um, that have funding in them. But when you're working with an individual case, that case may be in a situation where they qualify for three out of the five buckets and not the other two. And so we, when we're looking at uh, kind of like our, our framework and our, our discussion around what we would like to do with the federal funding that's coming in the door, a lot of that money is going to be in buckets. Um, and, you know, we're, it's also a reality that like there will be federal funding that's going to the city, federal funding that's going to the county, federal funding that's going to the state. And there's gonna be separate reporting requirements for all of that. Um, and so I want, I want there to be an awareness that there's a complexity to it, um, but that if we do this well, the result is, is that we can come up with a fairly comprehensive system that addresses most of the need in the community, regardless of what individual bucket people fall into. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Seth, how are we doing on time? Do we wanna go over this budgeting info stuff or do we wanna save that for later? Um, I, we're fine on time if you wanna go ahead and knock that out now. Okay. Um, well, so, with this budgeting information that's been provided, I think it's just kind of an overview of um, some of what's available currently um, as um, sort of um, reauthorizable um, funding from Congress. Um, and I'm not sure how much information we've provided here, but um, these are the these are the, the HUD programs essentially. Um, and we've invited KHRC here today to talk about ESG specifically. Um, and also um, uh, Maria from the city to talk about what's currently happening with the ESG program. Um, and so if, if you guys would like to go ahead and talk a little bit about um, uh, how ESG works within the um, uh, state perspective and the and the city perspective, um, we could do that now if you guys are ready. I think we have our our KHRC friends. I'm not sure Maria has joined us. Okay. Would that make it better to wait till after the break for that? Yeah, we could go ahead and and take a break and then come back to it if you want to. Well, so so we we have some work to do between now and ten fifteen. Okay, all right. Let's do that work then. <laughs> all right. All right. 
Um, so before we move on from those terms and definitions, are there any questions or um, any terms that we should add to that list? two things. One, um, and, and we may talk about this later today, but uh, rapid rehousing, I think, is one that would be important because when you sit in coordinated entry, um, the, the funds that, through ESG, so this may come up, um, uh, the rapid rehousing funds that uh, Bert Nash administers, there's some pretty strict guidelines around who can and can't, how you, how you can be eligible for that. And um, as I've learned from, um, from Matthew, you know, it's not that rapid. Um, they're doing the best they can and they, they're doing an amazing job with that grant. But I think that there are um, different approaches to rapid rehousing that I know other partners in the community are looking at. Um, and I'm thinking of Lawrence Community, community Shelter um, and their approaches. So I think we're trying to uh, address the barriers that the federal rapid housing program presents to us. But I think when we talk about it in terms of funding from the federal government for rapid rehousing and air, and also through the state for ESG, um, there's some very there's some uh, guardrails on that um, that we should folks should be mindful of. And I know that was really eye-opening to um, our county commissioners when we had a conversation with them last year um, with some of the partners in this room. When we talk about rapid rehousing, it's not that rapid and it's real complicated. The last thing I was going to say, you may have heard this already, but I don't know if it's Maria from the city that's supposed to talk about ESG or if it's Danny Walters. Um, somebody else may have said that. And I'm not sure I fully heard that acronym that you said. Was it ESG? Yes, the Emergency Solutions Grant. I would add to that that this is part of a wider conversation, kind of going back to what Andy was talking about when you're talking about funding and buckets that certain funding streams have certain requirements and that those requirements both restrict who those funds are available for and they also create process that has to be completed before the funds can come into play to provide the service that they're intended to provide. Those two things, when you combine them together, make for a scenario that uh, can make the funding usage bulky or a little awkward or clunky um, and but it's also hard I think that well is important for the community to understand and it's important when we're talking about funds and how we're using funds and when we're making plans for the use of funds that we understand those processes not only so we can have a, a realistic expectation for the outcomes and how those outcomes will be realized but so we can make an educated uh, effort in designing a plan for the, the use of those funds. Well, and I think it's important 
um, I know we're focused on ESG right now, but I think it's important to understand what those funding streams look like from ESG, because even though there's rapid rehousing, there's different funding, COC has different funding, you know, there's permanent supportive housing, emergency services, there's shelter, there's rapid rehousing, there's street outreach. Um, so I think understanding the complexity and requirements for each one of those funding streams, whether it's COC funding or ESG funding or even private funding, you know, uh, what do they look like? What are the definitions? What are the requirements? Because I think as we approach trying to solicit someone else to come in and, and be a partner as well on a financial side, we need to speak the language that the programs speak, that the funding streams speak, because not everybody's going to be best placed in rapid rehousing. Some are going to need COC permanent supportive housing. Do we have that? What does that look like? Um, and I'm speaking that from a COC side because to move funding around the state where it's always been placed, and historically it has been very dominantly placed in certain areas only, and as we grow, we are being more mindful of where that goes and where the needs are and what types of needs. So I think not just defining rapid rehousing, but defining the funding streams for each of our primary, and I'm going to say HUD funded or HUD derived funding um, programs that way that we can understand when we're saying rapid rehousing COC versus rapid rehousing ESG, permanent supportive housing versus shelter that we are all speaking the same language and on the same page with a true firm understanding of what each of those means, if that makes sense. I'd also like to put in a plug for, for uh, populations of folks that are often undercounted because of HUD definition and the limitations thereof. So 60% uh, of the households at Family Promise of Lawrence serves each year are not qualified according to the HUD definition of homelessness or houselessness, and yet they do not have a place to stay. So we need to, to consider uh, seniors and, and families. Um, the definition of homelessness from the Department of Education is different than HUD, um, and Family Promise National is working to uh, advocate for that change at HUD, at the HUD level with um, Secretary Fudge right now, which is encouraging, but we can't uh, forget this group, this large group of our of our community. I, I think I think that's a great observation, Dana, because uh, yeah, the HUD definition really needs to be reworked in today's world. It doesn't count people for those of you who aren't aware. It doesn't count people who are doubled up, and that means if you're staying on a family member's couch with your three kids, you're not homeless. And that's crazy. So yeah, I think I think we're all pretty aware of, of how that's a, a problematic definition. The problem is that because HUD provides so much funding for people, that is the definition that we need to use a lot of the time. Correct. And this group of people that does this couch surfing thing are, are incredibly vulnerable to a lot of trafficking and, and just horror. So it's really an urgent issue. Sure. Thank you all for speaking to that. Carrie, you might've seen this, but we have a couple other terms in the chat that folks have asked us to um, create a little clarity on. Uh, Leah and Jasmine and Missy all said it would be helpful to discuss a definition for houselessness. Would one of you three like to get us started for what a, a useful common definition of houselessness could be? 
I'll chime in. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what their intention was, but I think this speaks directly to what Dana and David were just speaking about, that there are folks who are without housing, yet who do not meet the definition of homelessness. So they don't have a permanent place to live or a place to live that is contractually or possessively theirs. Um, but they may be on someone's couch or they may be staying with someone else. They may be in a hotel room. They may be um, in a, some other form of shelter, but that is not a form of housing in the sense of what we consider a home to be uh, when a household has their own home. That seems really helpful, Matthew. It looks like Jasmine's feeling okay about that. Other folks who want to shape a definition of houselessness here? Um, I think that that term, the term houseless um, kind of comes directly from uh, grassroots organizing that people who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness are, are, engaged, are engaged in. So it comes directly from kind of those groups. And um, so it's kind of hard to define without their input. And um, I think it also uh, speaks a little bit to the sense that um, unsheltered Houseless folks uh, work to create community sort of wherever they are. So they don't necessarily feel like they don't have a home, but they feel like the problem is, is that they don't have housing. <laughs> so I feel like they, they feel that they're um, skilled at building community wherever they are, but that um, they're entitled to the dignity and the enfranchisement that only permanent housing um, affords. And so that's kind of in my conversations with folks where that term comes from. Uh, but again, I think it's really important to consider how people experiencing homelessness want to be labeled or defined because um, I've also talked to folks, maybe folks in the shelter who find that term to be really weird and off-putting. So I don't think there's like uniform acceptance that um, referring to people as houseless is somehow better or more dignified than I'm um, saying experiencing homelessness. So I just wanted to clarify that because um, sometimes in our like uh, spaces as uh, service providers or advocates, um, we can get like a little wonky with our language or a little like pretentious. And, you know, some people really value the term houseless and other people are off put by it. So I appreciate that, Renee. We also had a suggestion for creating a little more clarity around the idea of what outreach means. Hmm. Brandon or Jill, would one of you get us started there? If you want, I'll. I, I think he's trying to jump in, but yeah, I'd, I would actually ask if Matthew might want to contribute to that. Well, thank you, Matthew. Um, yeah, no problem. So outreach and, and outreach teams and, and outreach service have been in existence for a long time across the country in various different places in the country. Um, and I think it is important to talk about this because there are other types of services that people may confuse with outreach, such as case management or service or care coordination or you know, uh, 
resource navigation, et cetera. Um, in its kind of purest form, originally, what outreach is, is an attempt to go connect with people who are experiencing homelessness or in any field of service to connect with folks who you're targeting for that given service and to inform them of the resources that are available and to help them connect with the different agencies or organizations that provide the resources that are available for them. So really connecting with people and then connecting those people with resources. That connection piece with the household of need involves building rapport, building trust, providing information, um, and providing some very, in the, in the sense of homelessness, providing very basic uh, resources, you know, some, some food for that day, um, some clothing, some equipment to deal with the weather, water, hygiene uh, items, etc. That kind of service is different than, for example, case management, which is typically a, a much longer service in, in most situations. <laughs> And where outreach connects people with resources, case management may also do that and can also do that, but case management is also there to help people um, perform the activities of daily living that they need to accomplish in their lives and help them basically manage their overall service needs and that are associated with whatever their, whatever those needs are. Typically case management in its formal sense takes place in the medical field, both in mental and physical health. There are physical health case managers as well as mental health case managers. Um, and that is in a real way, a much more comprehensive in-depth uh, service than what I would call a pure outreach. I think for the purposes of the local continuum of care here in Douglas County, when we talk about outreach, we are also talking about case management capacity to not only connect with folks who have a need and connect them with resources, but to also walk alongside them and provide some more of those in-depth case management, intensive case management services. The, but when, when you're talking about pure service definitions, there's a, there's a significant difference historically between outreach and case management. Thank you for that clarity. And I saw a little bit of conversation in chat. So is there another discussion that we need to have around the definition of racial equity? Um, I saw a definition in the chat um, and yeah, yeah, Jill, is okay to use your definition in the document? Um, I mean, I just copied and pasted what um, Community Solutions, who's the parent organization for Adult Zero, and I, I like their definition. So if there's consensus that that's a good, good for this, um, I just don't want to do it without having consensus of the group. But um, it is it does speak to what Sherilyn offered in the chat, which is that that point in time count that was mentioned before um, does show that we have a disproportionate number of um, black and brown folks that are in that count. 
Um, I learned such an interesting fact yesterday about our um, racial disparities in homelessness and um, the disproportionality that in across the state of Kansas, it's actually Native Americans who have the highest disproportionality of um, experiencing homelessness. And then African Americans are next over that. But I think um, at the shelter, we serve 10% of folks who are Native American. Of course, that's a really high rate. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to offer that. Thank you. That's interesting uh, to hear. Yeah, at Family Promise of Lawrence, it's 17%, Renee, is a Native American population. Yeah, and that, that's definitely something that is particular to the, the Lawrence Douglas County area with the presence of Haskell and um, like where we're situated within the state that we we do tend to see a, a larger Native American population here as a whole. Um, and so it, it certainly makes sense that we would see, um, you know, the, well, and the I think we over, over representation, right? Yeah. Right. And I think we recognize it in Lawrence Douglas because we're engaged with the Haskell Nation and the Haskell tribe. But uh, speaking from a COC level, one of the challenges we have on a statewide is we do not have or not have been successful engaging a lot of the tribes. There's a level of distrust and disengagement. So mm -hmm. to be fair, that number is probably even not even close to accurate if we were really able to engage them and report them and support them, but we don't have that confidence uh, from them or trust or level of engagement. And that's absolutely something that is uh, a conversation we're actually having. I'm sitting on a statewide effort for in indigenous peoples that is leading to how do you approach, how do you engage and so forth. So um, if we were fair with ourselves, I think it would probably double that um, once we actually have the ability to document you know, report and relate uh, with our different, the various tribes. I don't even remember the, the number of different tribes identified in Kansas is a significant four. number. I, I don't remember how many, but it was, is that what it is, Maria, four significant. So Maria actually probably could speak to more of what I'm saying um, with a little more definition and expertise, because I'm just speaking broad, but I think Maria could support what I'm saying is we don't have those relationships or ability to report or even support them. So, hi, Maria. Absolutely, absolutely. Right on. And just to piggyback on that, <clears throat> as uh, I'm enrolled Menominee from Wisconsin, just from experience, tribes generally feel that their funding only comes from a federal level. Therefore, they don't engage in the state. That is potentially why the numbers are so high for Indigenous people. Thanks for that, Maria. And thank you all for your contributions and additional definitions. Um, that was helpful to hear and to make sure that we touched on those things that are, are important to you that you think are going to come up um, throughout our conversations today. We'd like to spend a couple of minutes this morning um, doing a little bit of priority setting. We're gonna talk a lot about many different facets of homelessness and houselessness as an issue and um, 
So keeping in mind what you heard earlier today as the purpose of our conversation for our time together, which I'm going to go ahead and paste in the chat again, um, as being, um, if our purpose is to create a framework to connect all the efforts in Lawrence and Douglas County, identify areas where more investment or support might be needed, and provide information on the funding that may be available and think about how to braid it together. So if that's our big purpose today, what um, th what stands out to you as being most important to address of the, the issues that you know happening in your work or lived experiences? I'll, I'll chime in. I would say dedica dedicated housing stock. Good. And I would Matthew. offer alignment of efforts. We have a lot of programs, but we're not really aligning or uh, mm -hmm. uh, partnering our funding. You know, sometimes we have funding for housing, but not case management or workforce support or medical. And we are, I mean, Missy and I have done extensive work this year just on the medical side. But I think that if everybody brought their pieces to the table, that would build a true, uh, what we refer to, I think you guys all know, as wraparound um, case management. Even if we're not the only one doing all of it, we worked collaboratively with each and every person to end homelessness or address other um, barriers, issues that could lead to housing instability. So, Yeah, in addition to housing stock and that uh, significant uh, appropriate workforce that can provide wraparound services. I'm going to add two uh, off of both of those um, points. One would be um, housing stock for supportive housing. And the other one is prevention, prevention of homelessness, real proactive program. Yeah, this is Sandra Dixon and Decca. I think I'd like to add, I'm going to add on to what Dana said, um, a continuum of housing options based on the needs of the folks who are needing housing. Okay, I'm going to ask us to pause really quickly so Seth can catch up on his notes. Um, Seth, are you doing okay? I think I am. And I'll just right. remind folks, we're looking for the highest level, most important things today. We're going to have plenty of time to move to more specific strategies as we go on. Thank you, Seth. Um, Leah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Leah. Go ahead. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, sorry, Renee. Um, this is Leah. With uh, I'm, I recently took a position as the affordable housing administrator from the city, but most of my experience um, has been with the United Way of Douglas County. So, uh, uh, um, in this community, um, looking at these issues, and one thing that I noticed from that vantage point, it seemed to me that um, housing and homelessness in our community are often discussed as two separate and distinct issues and homeless uh, folks that are homeless providers and working on issues of rapid rehousing and homelessness are sort of over here and then housing folks are over here and even looking at our um, uh, the housing plan in our community health plan it doesn't actually address homelessness and um, 
it has seemed that we need a really strong collective impact effort um, that brings together these two issues of recognizing that they are uh, um, they are the same issue um, and that affordable housing and housing is homelessness prevention and really local uh, leadership in um, doing collective impact um, efforts that address both of the um, both of those areas. Mm -hmm. But I may be off base. That's just um, my experience sort of um, doing collective impact around anti-poverty efforts. Um, I, I agree with you, Leah. And I think that's a really, those are really good points. I'm kind of in the same way. Um, housing and health are connected issues. Um, and housing is public health. And we've learned that this year sort of more than ever. And so as we're talking about rated funding models or blended funding models, um, the challenge is gonna be how do we wrap in care into all of the efforts that we're making to um, provide housing and remedy homelessness. Um, the lack of access to supportive services and healthcare for folks who are experiencing homelessness in Kansas is just such a huge barrier. So um, that's really, I think, going to be a, a real challenge that requires a lot of um, critical program development planning and work is how do we wrap in support with everything that we're doing or generating. Really doing a great job of, of suggesting ideas and getting a little bit into the later work that we're going to do today of, of what are the opportunities and challenges that you're, that you are facing in this work. Um, so other things that come out as the most important issues to address. Harry, I'll, I'll, um, go to the, the really high level, you know, the 30,000 mm -hmm. foot level. Um, and, and just say, uh, you know, I, I recognize the 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 goal of the session, you know, being being uh, motivated out of the acknowledgement of federal funding, uh, potentially you know, major federal funding. And so, I think a goal that that I'd like to see is uh, us accomplish is just that as as a um, system of providers and stakeholders, and as a community, we understand, um, you know, what those opportunities are that we're going to prioritize so that we're working in a coordinated way. We're working together towards community level goals. And so I, I think that's captured in some of these other comments, but um, you know, assessment is a big part of that. Um, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, the, the identification of those sort of opportunities for surge investment where, where we really need to target um, these potentially once in a career opportunities of funding. Thank you for that, Brandon. When we're talking about funding options, can we talk about funding that's going towards prevention versus, um, if I can use the word correction? Um, the reason I ask that is I think it's emotionally and financially easier to divert someone from shelter than it is to help them recover once they're in shelter. 
Thank you, John. Right. And I, I know that there have been a few suggestions um, put into chat and we'll make sure that those get made, get pasted over into this list as well. Um, so we've got another couple of minutes if we want to toss in one or two more urgent priorities that need to be addressed. Yeah, well, and I was just looking at the list and it looks like maybe there's a few things in here that could be um sort of combined into a, a one bullet point but like in, investment and in prevention versus correction and prevention of homelessness or or two bullets um and then um i was also thinking that we might be able to um highlight the bullet about um recognizing housing and health are connected issues and, and tag that with um, social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. oh, I think that should be on the bullet below where it is. Oh, thank you. Sure. I think you could even add diversion up there um, in front of prevention of homelessness and investment in prevention versus correction, because diversion really is a little different than even homeless prevention. Um, they all have the same intent, but diversion is using your tools and HP, homeless prevention, as I was talking about earlier, the different streams, different funding, means something different when you're talking about funding. So I think all three of those would be appropriate to, together. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. Uh, Seth, thank you. All right, thank you all so much. If you have other ideas that you wanna make sure get on that list, go ahead and put those in the chat for us. But at this time, we wanna make sure we're not working you too hard today. We know that this takes a lot of energy um, for these conversations. And I wanna encourage you to, to take a break. So we're gonna take a break um, until 10.45. Um, so it is a longer break, but again, we recognize that this takes a lot of brain brain power to, to have these conversations. So if you're planning to come back around 10, at 10.45, we will get kicked off again um, and continue our conversation with the environmental scan of what is happening now. So stretch, take a break, get a snack, whatever you need to do. Right, friends, I hope you had a good break and were able to re-energize a little bit. Uh, we are going to spend the next bit of time talking through and uh, discussing what is happening right now in, in your area related to housing and homelessness. Um, and to start us off, Maria Boyd from KHRC is going to share a little bit of information about the Emergency Solutions Grant. And Maria, I will turn it over to you. You're already sharing your screen. So please feel free to take it away. Awesome. Thank you all first and foremost for having us. Um, so my name is Maria Boyd. I am the ESGCV program specialist. Today, I'm just gonna to touch on the Emergency Solutions Grant itself. Obviously, what is the purpose of ESG, right? It's to assist families and individuals to regain stability and permanent housing. So we're just gonna do a brief synopsis 
Um, and uh, any questions I ask that you uh, kind of, I guess, parking lot those till the end of the presentation, just, uh, just to be mindful of time. So there are five components of ESG, emergency shelter, rapid rehousing, homeless prevention, street outreach, and administration. I think it should be noted that it's not required to apply for funding from all five components. Rather, we ask our agencies to determine how they're gonna maximize the program by determining which components are gonna benefit their agencies. Currently, the ESG 2021 um, app, it's live and can be located on the KHRC website. You can find that under ESG forms and documents. So it's due the 25th of May, but if you mail that in, some of our agencies mail it, uh, we definitely need that postmark by the 25th. Otherwise we will not be able to accept that application, unfortunately. So the first component we're gonna talk about is emergency shelter. And I ask you all to focus on the left-hand side of your screen so that I can read the right-hand side. Left-hand side contains eligible costs. Emergency shelter means any facility, the primary purpose of which is to provide a temporary shelter for the homeless in general or for specific populations of the homeless and which does not require occupants to sign a lease or occupancy agreement. So it's important to identify that emergency shelter generally is the most comprehensive program that we have or a component rather. Um, so one would lead to another. This is, the main, this is the main component that has all kinds of funding streams coming from different areas. So we don't want our agencies to limit themselves to rapid rehousing and homeless prevention. We would like you to extend out as, as far as you can. The next component we're gonna talk about here is rapid rehousing. Households receiving rapid rehousing assistance do not have to income qualify for program entrance, but must have an income below 30% area mean income for the geographic area after 12 months of assistance at annual certification. Notice it says do not have to income qualify. That's not the case with the next slide. Homeless prevention. Households receiving homeless prevention assistance must have an income below 30% mean income for the geographic area at entry and must meet the definition of at risk of homelessness. So it is very important to identify the difference between the two, which is the status of the individual of the time of entry. So notice previously on rapid rehousing, generally they're homeless. They don't have to qualify for, in, for income wise they do for homeless prevention. So once we go back for rapid rehousing and we reanalyze those 12 months, if their income exceeds that 30%, they no longer qualify for rapid rehousing, right? So just identify that, that the only difference between the two is the status of the individual at the entry time. The next component we're gonna talk about here is street outreach. An individual or family who lacks a fixed, regular and adequate nighttime residence meaning an individual or family with a primary nighttime residence that is public or private place not designed for or ordinarily used as regular sleeping accommodations like cars, park, abandoned buildings, bus, train station, airport, or campgrounds. So when we see street outreach in our program, a lot of people use it as a catalyst. This is generally to meet the immediate needs of unsheltered homeless people where we have street teams going out trying to engage people that generally are not willing to walk into a facility and ask for help. So this one here is generally paired with something so that it can be the catalyst to something else. Again, we ask each agency to identify in their area what would be, what would maximize the usage of ESG. 
The last component is administration. So administration includes general management, oversight and coordination, reporting on the program, costs of providing training on ESG requirements and attending how to approve ESG trainings. Those trainings are pretty rare. Um, this is a really broad um, slide here. So if you have questions on us, feel free to inbox me privately your email address. I can certainly shoot you over the ESG handbook after the presentation, not a problem at all. So just a reminder, ESG 2021-2022 application is live and it's located at KHRC website under ESG forms and documents. That deadline is May 25th and must be postmarked by May 25th. So the whole purpose of our uh, presentation today was we got asked to present on the city of Lawrence. The city of Lawrence is doing great things. Um, it's just really awesome to see it. I'm, I actually live in Lawrence. So I, I, I see it every day. I live right by the river here. Um, so for me, it was, I, I immediately said, can we ask the city of Lawrence to prevent? They are funded in all five categories. So I feel that we could do them some justice by allowing them to present themselves. So we went ahead and asked Danny Walters. Thank you so much, Danny, for being willing to assist us. You can go ahead and take over on that baton. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right, and I'm gonna share my screen too, if that's okay. You should be able to. Yeah, I'm just getting it all set up. <laughs> all right, so yeah, as Maria said, um, we uh, I'm just gonna kind of give you a brief overview of how we're utilizing ESG in Lawrence. Um, I'm gonna focus mostly on the uh, CARES Act money. We have actually uh, been getting ESG since 1989. Um, as you can see, the um, it, it, there's definitely been a difference in the impact in the community from 1989 through uh, <laughs> through now. Um, our very first application was for a small renovation project at a first step house and we got $15,000. So um, in 2020, we did actually, uh, this is this did end up being more than what we usually get. Um, we average anywhere between 100 to about 140,000 a year in ESG, but um, I think kind of as you'll see as my slides uh, show, the, the ESG CARES Act money that came in really opened up a whole new batch of, of programming, of, of ways to use it, um, just some, some really great efforts in, in uh, how we can utilize ESG better in the community. As, uh, as you can see, our total ESG CARES Act funding to date we've received is a little over 2 million. Um, I refer to the ESG locally in two different um, grants and the state refers to it as one. So if you hear me accidentally refer to ESG CV1 or CV2, it's first and second rounds of, of the funding. So just kind of a breakdown here of how we're utilizing ESG CV and Lawrence. Um, these are uh, these are cumulative totals over um, what I consider both of the uh, both of the rounds, and I'll go into a little bit of detail on each just to kind of show how they're being utilized in the community. I did also, you know, kind of work up a little bit of a, a, a dialogue and just some information and maybe some some challenges people are facing, but we kind of covered that before the break. So um, I will kind of just move through here and. Uh, if someone has questions, just shoot them in the chat and I will, I will get to them. 
So for emergency shelter, we have been utilizing the CB money for operations and essential services just for providing those overnight shelter um, bed nights to folks during the pandemic. Obviously, um, you know, situations have changed occupancy has changed the way we the way we're doing business has changed so this cv money went to assist the community shelter and willow with some of those changes with the operations and essential services of just providing that that, that critical service in the community we also did use some money for a temporary emergency shelter uh, this was the condo lodge program the uh what it did was it provided that kind of temporary shelter space and also case management services to um, folks that were unsheltered during the pandemic based on, again, occupancy situations, just kind of everything that the, the, the havoc that the, the pandemic kind of caused on, on this population. The uh, Econolodge program was administered by the city of Lawrence. So we did the request for, um, for quotes from the hotels and kind of did that administrative end. We paid the hotel, we you know handled kind of all of that stuff. And then we actually contracted with LCS, with Lawrence Community Shelter to provide the case management services for the, the folks in that hotel. Um, they handled all of the, you know, the intake, the HMIS piece, and what's really nice is, um, as, as you'll see in a, in a couple of slides, I think the, uh, the, the community shelter also was the recipient of uh, rapid rehousing funds. So this was really just the perfect way to try to truly move folks through the continuum of housing to move them from a temporary shelter situation into one where there's a rapid rehousing situation. So um, of the 68 folks that were housed during this time frame in this program, 25 of them were moved into, into permanent housing. So um, I think when you're when you're looking at percentages, that's that's a pretty healthy, healthy number. Um, and uh, any specific questions about that, I can definitely connect people with Renee um, as she was in charge of the, the case management of that project. For homeless prevention, we um, looked at eviction prevention and housing stabilization services. And we have you know, two really strong programs in the community working through homeless prevention. Uh, Catholic Charities of Northeast Kansas, who's um, been one of our grantees for, for multiple years and does just a really wonderful job with, with prevention in the community. And then also kind of this, I don't wanna call it the newly formed housing stabilization collaborative, but um, the, the, the HSC is a, is a really high functioning, good, effective um, group that's that's looking at these these um, eviction prevention and housing stabilization the, the piece in the community they've uh, they've been able to you know to, to somehow navigate through a lot of different applications a lot of uh, of different funding pots and and still keep within all of the compliance for all of the programs which which it can be challenging. Um, they've, they've just got a very strong, a very strong presence and a really good um, collaborative base in the community. So they're doing really, really great work in this field as well. Uh, rapid rehousing, as um, the slide that kind of showed the breakdown of funding showed, this is where the bulk of our funds in the community have gone to. And, you know, we're 
trying to provide emergency housing assistance for those experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. And our two main agencies that are actually doing the, the kind of on the ground, getting people housed, working through the case management piece are Burt Nash and Lawrence Community Shelter. The third one is um, actually a really cool program that was you know, kind of came from collaborative uh, conversations as this money was, was being released. And this is for the Landlord Liaison Program. Um, what this is, and I, I, I'm not sure if um, when Matthew was, was talking earlier, if he had mentioned, you know, I know that units are, are an issue for being able to, you know, fully really strongly utilize rapid rehousing funds, lack of units, and also that, that landlord participation piece. Um, the, this particular position is, is working to really kind of bring those landlords to the program and also bring the program to the landlords. So we're in the, well, the housing authority is in the process of getting that position hired right now, but it's going to be, it, it's going to be such a needed piece in the community just to kind of link all of these different programs together and, and kind of be that, that, that navigator that's, that's moving the pieces from, from place to place. And there's also a landlord incentive program that's, that's mixed in with that. Um, it's been a, it's been a successful model at other in other communities. So we're, we're really excited to get that one up and, and fully moving. Um, for our homeless outreach piece, um, some of you might be familiar with Camp Woody, which was our uh, city sanctioned campsite for those experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. Um, it was it was really a very cool project. Um, it was a, a very highly collaborative project. So we had, you know, city, county, hospital, Burt Nash, the neighborhood. We had the, the president and vice president of the neighborhood association at all of our planning meetings. This was just a, it was just a really cool collaborative effort. Um, it was a pretty successful campsite. It was operated by the city of Lawrence Parks and Rec staff. And I have to give a shout out to the folks in Parks and Rec. They have been incredible with these, um, these, these newer programs that really are not in what their job description called for, but they, they stepped up and just really did a wonderful job running these programs. I have, as, as someone who worked through the administration of the, of the funds, I have nothing but really, really wonderful things to say about everyone in Parks and Rec that was working through this. The case management services for the area were provided by uh, the Burt Nash Homeless Outreach Team. So again, just another piece of that collaboration that was pulled in. And it, uh, let me look at my notes I wrote down. I believe there were, Matthew, if you're there, if you could step in, I do not see where I wrote down the, the amount of uh, folks that you guys housed. Was it? So the, the camp served a total of 33 people uh, from the time it opened to the point in which it closed down. During the time it was opened, we housed 11. There were several other who exited um, under other circumstances. Um, and we still have several others who were residents of that camp who will be housed uh, in the next short period of time over the next few weeks um, through the rapid rehousing program that we operate. I think some things to note about that is that the rapid rehousing program that we operate is open to anyone and you know all agencies in the community so we were with that uh 
staff and through that period of time also working to house folks with LCS and Family Promise and Willow and folks who are unsheltered um, as well as folks in the camp. So the amount of time and energy that had to be split um, you know, amongst all of those folks, uh, it wasn't just dedicated to, to the Woody Camp project. Thank you, Matthew. Sorry to put you on the on the spot there. You're okay. Um, and the, just a, a, a tiny bit of background on, on Camp Woody. Um, this was originally a, uh, a county CARES Act funded um, project, but as, as some of you know, with the county CARES Act money, there was a drop dead expenditure date of 1231 on that. So nothing could be incurred after that date. So thankfully for ESG, ESG was able to step in and, and continue that camp from January to March. So um, it was it was a really, really good project. And it's it's set up a template that, you know, that shows it can work. So I think that that's that's kind of a key point of this, too. Um, so just a, you know, just a couple of uh, thoughts and observations, I, the success that, that we've had thus far with um bringing these new programs in, um, you know, assisting the community during the pandemic it is absolutely not possible without that relationship between the city and KHRC. Um, I know at any point in time, I could pick up the phone and ask a question to either Maria or to, to James, the, the program manager. And it, it, it's, it's such a wonderful um, collaborative relationship between the two. I can have a crazy idea and I can call James and say, what do you think about this? And um, they, I think that it's, it's given us the opportunity to come up with some innovative things that, that normally, you know, we wouldn't see here. So um, I, I know that we have talked about um, the, the need for an even greater level of collaboration, but I would say that what ESG funding has done is it's kind of put us on that road to enhancing the collaboration um, just as a result of the new programming in the community and also as a result of everything that, um, that, that Tuck and Matthew were doing with coordinated entry. Um, it's, you, you can kind of see it starting to, to take shape of of being the most effective way in the community to to work through to work through this um, this type of thing. So um, we found really creative ways of of, of tying funding together. Um, like I mentioned, the, um, <laughs> the 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 compliance and monitoring on this is not easy. Um, duplication of services is a is a real thing that we have to be very cognizant of. And the more um, the more resources you have coming in looking at and working with programs like this, the higher um, scrutiny you have to put on it. So um, creative ways of compliantly tying funding together should, should maybe be what that line says. And then again, um, as I kind of mentioned before, uh, just the carryover benefits to future funding efforts. So if you can take this, this, this influx of money that, that we've never seen before and be able to, to create some really cool things and to, to do some, some really impactful projects, that can carry over to future funding efforts. So instead of, well, you know, we don't wanna take a risk on this maybe because we're not sure if it'll work, you know, we're starting to, to really show the proof that some of this stuff really does have a good impact, so. 
that was all I had. Um, if anybody has any questions or if any of our partner agencies, you know, wanted to, to add anything, if there's time, I would, uh, I would turn the floor over. So. Right. In the interest of time, um, if you have questions, you can go ahead and put those in the chat. Also, Maria and Danielle, thank you, first of all, for that information and presentation. It's exciting to hear about the great work that you are doing. And if you're open to questions outside of this forum and could put your contact information in the chat, that would be wonderful. <clears throat> so really quickly, um, I want to make sure that folks have a chance to put their questions in the chat if you do have them. Um, and we're gonna shift gears and start um, having some smaller group discussions about what's currently happening, um, doing a, an environmental scan of, of what is happening. Um, and we'll do that in, uh, in four parts this morning. Um, first, we're going to ask you to take a little bit of time in your small groups um, and just get to know each other a little bit. While you're there for that first bit of time, we do ask that you identify somebody who's going to be your, your recorder or your note taker um, and also your reporter. Those can be the same person, but they don't have to be. Um, and your reporter is going to report back out for you um, some highlights of your discussion when we come back together. Um, and then for the other remaining three rounds, we'll um, have you discuss current, a current situation um, in a guided way, and we'll have a worksheet for you. I'll put that in the chat when we come back. Um, so um, again, to get us started off, we're going to ask you in your small groups to spend a few minutes just introducing yourselves and getting to know each other. Then we'll come back and we'll start that environmental scan portion and have some more directions for you. I do want to note that one of our groups will remain in this main room, um, and that is to benefit the recording of the session. When we started this morning, you would have gotten a notification that the session is being recorded. Um, and that is going to allow the city of Lawrence to post this, um, this recording for others to see throughout, uh, or once our work continues and they can kind of see the, the process that, that was used for, um, for our summit today. So Rexy, if you are ready, I think we can go ahead and break into our first set of breakout rooms and we will see you guys back here in about three, or I'm sorry, about five minutes. I assume we are a group. How do we go to our group or is this the group? Sorry. Okay. If you are still here, you are going to remain here and this will be your small group. So um, you will have your discussion here in the room. And I recognize that's a little bit different than you might have done before. All right. Does anyone want to be the recorder and reporter? If not, I can. 
but I'll, you know, happily let anyone else who's champing at the bit to do that step up. I'll, I'll do it, Matthew. Okay, cool. You, you, you all can fire me later if you don't like my work. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, well, I'm Matthew Falk. I'm the uh, director of housing with the Burt Nash Community Mental Health Center. Our, our housing division encompasses um, uh, supportive housing, some residential crisis, and our homeless outreach and rapid rehousing programs, as well as our benefits and entitlement uh, team, which is a SOAR team, helps people apply for Social Security, SSI, or SSDI benefits, and Medicaid. All right, well, I'll go next. I'm John Crable, and uh, I'm here today representing Justice Matters uh, here in Douglas County. Uh, I, uh, my role with Justice Matters, uh, along with uh, Steve Ozark, who I also see on the call, uh, is we are the uh, co-coordinators for the Homeless uh, Committee of Justice Matters. Homelessness is one of the three initiatives that uh, we're tackling have been now for about a year and a half. Uh, uh, just a couple of other of my personal connections to the homeless situation and the homeless concerns here in Lawrence. I also uh, manage Jubilee Cafe uh, at First United Methodist Church downtown's campus, which we provide uh, breakfast uh, on Tuesday and Friday mornings down there. And uh, was also one of the uh, coordinators for the emergency winter shelter this year through the Days Inn uh, Hotel. So, Steve, do you want to go next? Yeah, thanks. Uh, my name is Steve Ozark. I am co-coordinator for homelessness with Justice Matters and with the uh, steering committee for affordable housing with Justice Matters. Um, I'm secretary for the Coalition for Homeless Concerns longtime advocate. Uh, I helped coordinate the winter shelters we did the last two years and then three years back in the O's, which no one wants to do those anymore. So let's get on with the meeting. Thank you. Uh, John, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, good morning. My name is John Booth. I'm the director of housing at Family Promise. Um, I jumped back into this group because I was assigned to another group with one of my colleagues and we were 50% of the group. Um, I'm excited about what I'm hearing and look forward to uh, a vibrant discussion going forward. All right. And uh, Renee, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? I'm Renee Cool. Um, I'm the executive director of the Lawrence Community Shelter. Okay, and Rebecca. Okay, I'll skip Rebecca. We'll go to Lisa. Lisa, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm Lisa Larson. I'm with the um, city commissioner um, with City of Lawrence. Great to have you. Um, and Catherine, do you want to introduce yourself? All right, she might still be away too. Um, Susan, do you want to introduce yourself? 
I lost Susan altogether. All right. Um, and then I'm seeing somebody that's logged in as DLI WS2. Um, I don't know if there's somebody on the other end of that that wants to introduce themselves or not. All right. And then I'll jump back again and just see if Rebecca is available and wants to introduce herself. Okay. Um, Brandon, did you get a chance to introduce yourself? I, sure, Brandon McGuire, Assistant City Manager with the City of Lawrence. Okay. Um, and it looks like Heather is attempting to join us. Um, so we'll see in little dots down there. It looks like she's connecting. But um, I'm Andy Brown. I'm the Commissioner for Behavioral Health Services at KDADS. And Sarah Polinski just popped in. Sarah Polinski, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Oh. Andy, we do have folks rejoining us. Oh, we're rejoining. Okay, that's yes. like, that makes a lot more sense. I was so Your group is not it. growing by that much. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, folks. Thank you. I hope you had a chance to introduce yourselves and, and get to know each other a little bit. Give folks time to get back in the room. Right. I think we should have everyone back here. So uh, again, I hope you had a good discussion and were able to meet each other a little bit. We kind of miss out on that through virtual meetings sometimes. So as I said before we broke, uh, we are going to spend a little bit of time doing an environmental scan and having conversations about what is currently happening. Um, in, uh, in Lawrence and Douglas County around these areas. So for each of these three areas, we're gonna hear just a little bit of information from Andy, um, and then we'll invite you to spend a couple of minutes thinking individually about what is currently happening. And then we'll go back into those breakout rooms you were in before and give you the opportunity to share um, what you reflected on um, in those small groups. And then we're going to ask you to, to report back one or two key things. Um, we want to make sure that we, everybody has a chance to share information. Um, and a couple of additional things that will be extremely helpful. We're, we do have a worksheet for you to take your, for your recorder to take notes on. In just a moment, I will put that in the chat. You can access that in your breakout room. So recorders, if you will take your notes on that document, um, We'll use the same document throughout each of these areas, and then you can either put it back in the chat or you can email it to me. My email address is on the, the worksheet. That will give us all of your notes in one place uh, and so that we can use them later on this afternoon. If you have questions uh, about that, please don't hesitate to put those in the chat so that we can help you troubleshoot as needed. Um, but Andy, if you want to get us started, we're going to start off with um, what's happening right now. What is the current state um, around homelessness and houselessness issues? Andy, go ahead and take it away, and I'll get that document in the chat. 
Yeah, and this this is pretty brief, but but really what we're looking for here is just um, the the awareness that that you can bring to the discussion about the current situation with homelessness in Lawrence and Douglas County, um, and how you feel um, it's uh, currently impacting our system based on you know all of the sort of environmental factors that that we're currently working with. So. You know how, how what's the impact of COVID been? How many uh, individuals are we trying to target with services? What um, what sort of uh, programming that's currently in place is um, strong programming that we want to make sure is um, continued? Um, those sorts of things. So those are the types of things that we're hoping you'll be able to discuss in this next uh, roundtable. Just kind of current state of affairs sort of things. Thank you, Andy. And so again, we invite you to spend a couple of minutes um, reflecting individually about that current state, and then we will break you into your breakout rooms again. So spend about a minute thinking through, and then we'll send you back to your breakout rooms. Rexy, if you wouldn't mind, I can go ahead and move to our breakout rooms to discuss the current state of things. And once again, that worksheet to take notes on is in the chat, and I will paste it one more time while we're getting trans transitioned in case it got lost in there. So Brandon, you're gonna be our note taker, right? Yes. Do we Are have a great? reporter? Um, we didn't do that last time. Oh, we didn't get that far? Um, I would nominate Matthew. Matthew? Be a reporter? Yep, sure. All right. Uh, and the key thing on the reporting out is just like one or two main takeaways from, from the round table. Um, okay. Right. 
And then Brandon, if you're brave enough to, to share your Word document that you're taking notes on, um, that could be yeah. helpful. Do you see the environmental scan yes. document now? Okay, great. Um, so again, uh, all, all we're really doing here is discussing um, what current programs look like in Lawrence and Douglas County, uh, what the current population of need is, um, and and what current needs are being met by those by the available programs. So um, I will let you guys take it away, Steve, John. You guys want to speak to any insight you have, Matt? Well, I think from, uh, I'll just chime in to from where we're at, um, you know, we're still kind of in the process of coming out of winter. Um, I know the numbers we gathered from the winter shelter process at all the various different locations were kind of um, telling, I think. I know that the Woody Camp served 33 unduplicated individuals, 11 of those got housed, so we can say that there's 22. Um, that we're still without housing by the time that shut down. I know on, and please correct me, John or Steve, if I'm wrong here, on the highest census day of the days in shelter, there was 236 unique individuals that were served. That's, yeah, that's correct. Okay. And the, Renee, the, a, the average, the, the average over 72 nights was 117. Okay. 117 average a night. Yeah. Um, Renee, what was the total number of unduplicated individuals that you served at the Econo Lodge? I don't have the unduplicated individuals number right okay. now, but it was over over 100 over 90 days. All right. And then over 10 months of hotel sheltering, um, it was a lot more than that. So we have a lot of exit data. Um, I think one of the most important things for us is we um, exited 55% of the folks that we served to an improved situation um, other than homelessness. And then everyone except for one individual, um, uh, we, well, that's actually not true. We, uh, 19 individuals were, at, households were exited for rules violations and then everyone else exited to a sheltered situation or a housed situation. So um, I think that's really, really important as we're talking about um, inputs, like volume of service, but let's also make sure that we're talking about outcomes. So where did people go after we connected with them? Sure, I, the, the question I think was to get a, a lay of the land and what the population of need looks like today and kind of where services are at today. Um, what's the current census at the shelter at LCS today? Right now we have 45 single 45. adults being served. Okay. In, in uh, shelter. And then we have, uh, probably, uh, we have, um, 35 households on our rapid rehousing caseload. Okay. Um, that, that they're in the triage for rapid housing, or that includes folks that have been housed? Those are folks that have been housed and are receiving housed, housing assistance. And so they're on our caseload, whether they have ESG rapid housing or not. So some of our folks um, have rental assistance from other sources. Okay. And 
I know that for our programs, oh, it's, we have in excess of 140 people that are enrolled in our PATH program. That's half of our outreach program. And then in the city side, we have approximately another 130 that we're working with. Um, that changes every single day. Um, mm -hmm. So that those aren't numbers that I can on any given day say, hey, this is the number. Because for example, yesterday we had uh, six different walk-ins that came in for services. Um, several of those were people we had never met before. So those numbers are always in flux. Um, I, I think to, so I think the, the general picture is that today there, we can calculate there's 200 plus persons at the very minimum who are without shelter or without housing um, within the community. Um, that includes both because we don't have the numbers from uh, is anyone from Family Promise on here? Yes, um, I am, Matthew. John, do you know what your census is? I don't. I will try and figure that out uh, for specific data. I mean, I do know generalities. The number of families needing shelter is increasing. And um, so is the um, need for our diversion and pre prevention programs. And that I think is very important. We make sure we talk about the funding and of those sorts of programs, because if we can prevent someone from going into shelter, I think it's more cost effective and far more important reduces the trauma on the family. Mm -hmm. So Brandon, do you mind just on the, on the generally 200 without housing, just putting unsheltered in there for the reason that term? Yeah, and that's probably a low ball. I would probably needs to be 250 or higher. Because just when I think about just Renee and outreach, and I know Family Promises, there's 250 right there. Mm -hmm. um, I Matthew, I may add, um, and this is very you know subjective uh, observation, but um, from our Parks and Rec staff, um, you know their their feedback is, uh, you know, they're, they're observing maybe an uptick. Uh, and camping in the park spaces, um, but uh, compared to, to you know past years, they're actually seeing more encampments as opposed to individual um, campers. Um, so larger encampments, uh, larger structures, um, some really actually actually impressive um, <laughs> kind of craft engineering, um, and so uh, that you know that becomes obviously a safety issue and especially in a pandemic when um you know when we're trying to provide separation uh you know that i think puts an already vulnerable population at risk for increased transmission and and then uh, also to the the COVID point uh we are as a park and rec organization city organization we are really trying to follow the cdc guidelines um, and minimize the disruption and relocation of, of campers unless it's of course you know to an indoor situation yeah 
Um, and Brandon, do you know, is, is there any work being done with the health department on inoculations for, for vaccines for folks that are camping? I am not aware of any um, kind of targeted outreach program like that. There's, there's uh, I some. I might ask the others. There okay. are. I think there's welcome some. Back in. We were having Hello, a good Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Matt, you're going to report out for us. Yeah. Is everybody back? I don't know yet, but we're going to wait just another minute. All right, I think everybody should be back. And in order to make sure we get you folks all to lunch on time, um, each round, we're only gonna ask a couple of groups to report out. Um, everybody will get a chance to report out and we will get all of your notes into the main document. So that's why we have worksheets. Um, so if we could have group one share out first, if you are not in, not sure what group you were in. That group included Bob, Aaron, Catherine, and Leah. And if you can share just um, one or two highlights from your conversation, um, that would be appreciated. So I think I'm the designated reporter as soon as I unmute my microphone. Um, we talked about a number of things and we started the conversation with some comments about how the work we've been doing over the last couple of months, particularly related to COVID and, and the winter um, has given a lot of us an opportunity to learn a lot more about the individual experience of uh, experiencing homelessness. And that's, a, that's something that's really important to keep at the center of our, thought, of our thinking. Um, we also talked about um, how COVID has done several things. One, it's put a lot of pressure on the system and that's revealed um, some collective understanding of gaps, significant gaps um, that we maybe collectively didn't understand, although we all had a sense of it. Um, but then also to show some opportunities for what we done, what we what we could do as a community. So the Camp Woody um, experience was really valuable um, and um, an example of what happens when collaborators come together fully. Um, there were some things that grew out of that personal experience that I was sharing was we had peers at the library when the library closed, they were unable to support at the library. They pivoted to Camp Woody. Some of that interaction led to a free health clinic standing up. So opportunities to sort of be experimental and act in a social entrepreneurial way. Um, and then the, the sort of the, the big piece in supportive housing is several projects that the county has supported. The buildings to the left of the, the graphic behind me, you know, a transitional home um, for people with serious mental illness and addiction, uh, 10 permanent supportive cottages that leverage HUD dollars, um, so safe and sober living in the community through artists helping the homeless. We're, tr we're trying to plant some seeds that give proof of concept to what's possible and, and sort of test the assumptions and what it takes to provide stable funding for there. So there's a lot of energy and I'm missing the, the things that I highlighted are directed in the conversation we had, you know, I'm missing pieces, which is why. Nope, that's okay. We just wanted one or two highlights. So thank you, Bob. Um, and then room two was Craig, David, Rebecca, and Shanae. And um, again, if you can share just a brief highlight of what you talked about in your room. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, so our group, we talked a little bit more high level than the question that was on the table, more focused on what types of funding streams um, paid what kind of programs and that how that was distributed in our community. Um, and so, which then affects what type of programs you have dedicated in that community. Um, so we talked about um, city funded programs, county funded programs and state funded programs and how we can kind of get all of those funding streams um, to work collaboratively together. Um, because let's say you're a nonprofit agency and you have multiple funding streams, one from the city, one from the county, one from the state, then you have so many different performance measures. Um, you have different requirements in your grant agreements that it's kind of hard to ensure that you're working collectively with all the other agencies because they have different performance measures or purposes than you do, even though they're funded um, with the same program, but just a different funding stream. Um, so we had a little bit higher level discussion than, than just that. So that kind of summed up what we were talking about. Great, thanks, Janae. All right, and then finally, room three, if you can share a quick highlight from your conversation. Uh, and that- Hi, um, oh, I'm Caitlin McDermott, and I'm just a community member. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we talked a lot about how things are different now because of the pandemic, um, or maybe that the pandemic just spotlighted something that's already been there. Uh, we talked about, you know, whether, whether we've uh, had an increased identification of need or whether there's been an increase of actual need. Um, and that uh, the pandemic has also forced creative uh, solutions and new collaborations, um, that there's been a focus more on stabilization of preventative uh, services and um, keeping people from being at risk of being homeless. Um, and that's about it. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Right, so we are going to repeat that process um, another time to um, talk about current situations. And Andy, can you give us a quick overview of what you're looking for in the current situations conversation? Yeah, so hopefully this one will be a little uh, simpler. But what we're looking for here is what unmet needs have you identified or do you think exist in the community? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I hope that's fairly simple. Um, and, I, and I do encourage you to trust in the process. Um, you know, we've we got two days here and we, we've got you know, a, a plan for how we're hoping to address this stuff and everything's going to start feeding into each other. But, um, you know, think about what unmet needs you see and witness in the community and uh, speak to that. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. So again, um, we invite you to take a minute and reflect individually and Rexy's will go ahead and put you back into your breakout rooms to discuss. We ask that you continue taking notes on the same worksheet that you were before. On page two is the current situations um, and unmet needs question and place for those notes. And when we finish after the final round today, you can email or post those in the chat. So, Rexy.
All right. So um, what sort of unmet needs jump to mind when you start thinking about Lawrence and Douglas County? I think that, um, can we just dive in, Andy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I think uh, you know, it can be hard when we're talking about needs and affordable housing and homelessness in Douglas County to uh, keep kind of like a focused vision when we're talking about that because the needs are extensive and there's a lot of different ways you can um, characterize the need as well. Um, but, you know, for those of us working in the Built for Zero um, collective, like the need for permanent supportive housing is really like top of mind. Um, and the other thing that, you know, I've been working on really uh, hard for over a year is also the need for non-congregate shelter options. Um, that is absolutely crucial. Um, one of the things that I learned um, at a webinar last month was that in 2020, 30% of the U.S. COVID deaths were residents and staff of congregate care facilities. So um, in an environment in which the pandemic is still a present reality, um, congregate shelter for staff, guests, and volunte volunteers is lethal. And so, you know, on our way to identifying permanent supportive housing, identifying non-congregate solutions for shelter is, um, and maintaining those solutions. We had a lot going um, a month ago. And now that the weather's warmed up, we've kind of had to scale back. And so over the next year, continuing to provide non-congregate shelter and develop more permanent non-congregate shelter options is, is a high priority for me. I'll break that down a little bit more. Um, you know, I, everything Renee said is spot on, exactly correct. Um, I think a, a part of that building of a non-congregate shelter environment means creating quick and expedited access to housing. And in relation to the ability to do that, that means permanent supportive housing, which is housing with supportive services. So housing with staff that can be there to provide case management wraparound services, but that is expeditedly accessible in the form of a housing first type of model where you have the ability to plug people into housing um, quickly and without any kind of prerequisites that or hoops or the, the least amount of process that that needs to happen in order to access. Just a question for the direct service providers. Um, is uh, case management, um, you know, professional service, uh, th those types of programs, are those, are those lacking? I mean, do we, do we have capacity yes. issues there? Yes, severely. So for example, even, even with folks who have, for example, Medicaid, the only you know, sustainable supportive service model is through SPMI mental health case management. And, and even there, our case managers are, 
their caseloads are all full, right? And, and more than full. Um, so there's, there's need for growth there. Um, I won't get into the details of that, but that also means for, for folks who don't have Medicaid or for, for folks who don't fit into the SUD, SPMI spectrum, the only, there's no, well, there's no intensive case management that's widely available at all. Um, the homeless outreach team that I operate was intended to try to provide some of that, but there's four workers. Um, you're, you have hundreds of people who have need. We can't provide intensive services in that kind of environment, right? We're just putting out fires um, on a daily basis. So the, the ability to actually get down in the weeds in a really intensive wraparound manner with individual clients is extremely limited. <clears throat> Matthew could probably speak better to this, but I, I constantly sense there is an ever-increasing bureaucracy, especially where the federal government is concerned. And one of the things I'd like to see is people spending more, less time on bureaucracy and more time on, you know, the actual client themselves. But I think, uh, like I said, I think Matthew could comment better. Yeah, I would like to see that there's a more direct feedback or a line of feedback to federal management and administration on, over you know HUD and different programs mm. because there are some things that are distinct and serious barriers that are systemic in just how we do business at that level. Welcome back, everyone. Those of you in the main room, I... Feel like we come in, we we all just kind of bombard your your group when we we can be all right so again um one or two highlights of your conversations about current unmet needs um and we'd like to start this time with the the group that is in the main room so if you are a part of the main room with andy um will your request Reporter, please share one or two quick highlights. Yeah, that's that's me. Thank you very much. Um, Renee pointed out that 30% of deaths related to COVID across the country were a result of, or were folks who were in a congregate type of living situation. So there's a distinct need to revamp our shelter network and shelter, shelter system into a non-congregate model if we're going to be able to successfully uh, operate those services in capacity moving forward. There's also an extensive need for permanent supportive housing for folks who might not know that's housing that is attached with supportive services. So staff who can wrap, offer wraparound supports for folks who are in the housing. In addition to that, there's a need for um, expedited access to housing, what we would typically call housing first type of services. And that is the ability to get people into housing, plug them into housing with the minimum amount of prerequisites, uh, really no prerequisites for them to access that housing and the minimum amount of process or due process that is required to just get into a house, like you know, filling out applications and jumping through bureaucratic hoops. And then John mentioned uh, that there are also barriers that are involved in just the basic bureaucracy that is involved with, for example, federal programs. Um, and it would be nice if we had more direct lines of communication to provide feedback to federal administrator, administrations about the systemic barriers 
that are created by just how we do business uh, with federal dollars. Thank you so much. All right, group four, a brief highlight of your discussion. And that was Charlie, Heather, Sally, and Sherilyn. Um, so we talked a bit about kind of the basic needs that are unmet um, since we spend our, uh, Rochelle and I spend all our time downtown. We need somewhere for people to be during the day um, rather than the library, you know, which is sort of a, a, a location that everybody, um, that a lot of um, homeless folks um, access and, and they can't really access it now very well. Um, and then the community buildings, um, you know, the, those have been either closed or now they're limited in certain ways. Um, so, you know, when you spend your whole day just kind of moving from place to place, it's kind of hard to to make any progress or to, you know, to even feel like you can start to make a plan um, of how to how to get through your day and your week and, and looking forward. Um, we need some <clears throat> basic needs met like bathrooms, um, shower facility, laundry, um, the ability to use a phone to, you know, make appointments or get a ride or things like that. And then actually um, Rochelle and I had um, in our conversations with transit about a new downtown facility, um, one thing that came up was lockers for bikes, but we were talking and we see a lot of folks, you know, they lose their, their belongings, their belongings are stolen. Um, they're constantly needing to replace. So again, you're sort of on this, this hamster wheel where you're not, you're not able to have any stability whatsoever. So if there was some sort of a public locker system, you know, for people to keep their belongings, maybe that would kind of help the situation as well. Um, because Ali, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut you off. We're running out of time and I want to make sure that we get to group five. So group five, would you mind going ahead and sharing um, a really quick highlight of your conversation? Sure. Uh, this is Jill. Um, uh, the biggest need is that uh, I unmet need is to better um, there are better have identify the folks that um, have a, a connection to Lawrence Douglas County um, in order to target resources to those folks. Um, the numbers of folks that are experiencing homelessness in the community are so large um, and there is a perception or um, real and or perceived um, that a lot of these folks are not, do not have a connection to Lawrence Douglas County, um, a majority of them, but there are, of the folks that do have a connection to Lawrence Douglas County, it would be, we need to better target resources to those folks. Thank you, Jill. And thank you for being so quick with your, with your comment. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, so we've got one final round of discussion that we would like you to have, um, and that is current funding. So um, again, Andy's gonna give us a quick overview of what we're looking for in that conversation, and then we'll have you spend about six minutes in your small groups. And just a warning to groups uh, six and seven who we haven't heard from yet, we're gonna have about a minute each for you to share your, your, uh, your um, highlights. So if you can prepare for that. So um, 
So this this is really just um, we're asking you to, to discuss how the city, county, state, and federal resources are being used in the community today, right? Um, so this is our you know we're kind of making an assessment of um, how how those dollars are being um, allocated and used. All right, I invite you to think about that as Rexy gets us moved into our breakout rooms one final time before lunch. So I'll, I'll jump in real quick, just as a conversation starter. I, from my perspective, um, especially looking at um, city funding, uh, but maybe some of like, you know, the ESG type funding that, that Danny um, reviewed earlier, I think, uh, you know, how, how it's being used, um, not, you know, I'm thinking not so much about how it's being used, but the, the process to make sure it's used, to make it used is um, disjointed. It's not a systems uh, based process. It's not identifying community level goals, um, targeting those. And instead, uh, it's sort of sort of like a program application process. Um, you know, the city uh, for a long time has run, a, run um, different sort of like kind of competitive application grant type uh, pro, uh, budget programs, if, if you will. Um, and so that's just something from my view, even with ESG, you saw a laundry list of different programs without a unified set of uh, performance metrics associated with that. Good point, Brandon. <laughs> to build on yeah. that, I, I'm not sure there's, we need, I'm sorry, start again. I think we need a one sort of stop shop for different funding needs. So for example, um, you know, for someone to work, they need uh, childcare assistance. They need support with rent, utility supports. Um, and and if, if all that and everything else you could think of was under sort of one small umbrella so that we didn't have to go to multiple agencies, that would, I think, be a big advantage. I totally agree, John. Uh, it would be nice to have a social service center in which all agencies have a have a office, but to kind of keep us on task, uh, we're talk, um, I think we're supposed to be talking about how we perceive funds are being spent. Um, and one thing I notice, and this is kind of in, this is all kind of been interesting in, in my life that all the funding streams, at least theory, not theoretically, um, the they exist, right? So HUD has funding for housing and supportive services, and the city is providing funds, and the county is providing funds they're either restrictively targeted. So they're only accessible by a very kind of like only SPMI people or only SUD people, or they're extremely underfunded um, and or the process of accessing them and administrating them is burdensome. Um, I, I, this is an aside. I think it's interesting. And we talk about socialism, et cetera, et cetera. I've lived in social countries. The U.S. has all the exact same departments and funding streams and programs that any of those countries have. It's just the way we administrate them and the way we make them accessible is what extremely differs from them. But I would say the same applies here. Um, they're disjointed 
they're, as John said, they're not operating under the umbrella of an, of a single plan of a community-wide strategy that we are all coordinating our efforts in order to achieve. They're, they've been historically operated as Brandon said, as program-based applications where this agency says, okay, I'm going to start a program and apply for the money to do it. And this agency says the same thing. And then, so you just kind of have some siloing and compartmentalizing, not only of the programs, but just of the overall resources that are available. Lisa or Renee, do you have anything um, to add? Yeah, I think that those are all those are all helpful. And on the for John, on the one-stop shop for for um, like a social services center, like one of the things we are trying to accomplish through um, continuum of care or bill for zero is um, having access points, which are uniform, where folks who are experiencing homelessness and need a VI spit out. Everyone, sorry, Renee. Sorry. <laughs> I was about to go full nerd. So we don't your <laughs> if you want to put that in the, in the chat to make sure it gets into your notes, please do that. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We've got just a couple of minutes before we break for lunch. Um, so group six, would you mind diving into your one minute highlight of your conversation? Sure. This is Stephen O'Neill, Burt Nash. Uh, we talked about the high level of local support from both the county and the city. Um, there's a lot of various initiatives that are going on. Uh, we also get COC funding here in Douglas County. Uh, we leverage state Medicaid dollars for those homeless individuals uh, that are uh, on Medicaid. We talked about the federal PATH grants. Uh, private foundation dollars and private fundraising that gets leveraged. Uh, we talked about the ESG and CDBG funds, federal SAMHSA funds, uh, the federal block grants, and some of the federal uh, COVID money. That's it. Great. Thank you so much, Stephen. And finally, group seven. Hi. Um, our, our group mainly ended up consisting of uh, folks who own businesses or property downtown. Um, we didn't have a ton of knowledge in this area, but it seemed to us that there's a lot of federal money becoming available now, but there's, um, you know, it's kind of, it can be inflexible money um, in some regards. Um, but a couple other things we did wanna like kind of bring up from past questions are that, um, a sort of issue of safety and clearly like in talking to other folks downtown, um, there's been altercations um, and, you know, Meg from Ladybird who runs, who has been running a food pantry, essentially um, providing meals and several other downtown businesses have been providing meals. There's clearly a need, uh, there's some food insecurity happening amongst this population and there's a big need there. Um, and uh, Meg in particular told me that having this population moving or being moved around in addition to the instability of already experiencing homelessness the the kind of moving of this population is kind of feeding an anxiety and and causing people to act out sometimes a little more violently um and so that's that's our quick little survey from the downtown perfect thank you paul and thank you all for your conversations 
I know that we did not have a whole lot of time for you to dig deep into those and appreciate the conversations that you did have. Um, again, if you were the recorder for your group, please email those um, notes to me so that we can use them later on this afternoon. My email address is at the top of that worksheet. And, um, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. With that, we um, are going to go ahead and break for lunch, give your brains a break, um, and we will reconvene at one o'clock this afternoon. Um, and when we come back this afternoon, um, it looks like we are going to be talking more about strengths, challenges, and our opportunities that we have coming up. So we will see you all at one. And if you want to log off of the meeting and come back and join, that's perfectly fine. It's the same meeting link, of course. So, so please feel free to do that if that's your preference. So we'll see you at one. Thank you, everyone. Pope, Catherine Ross. I mean, could you hear me? You can hear me now. Hi. Okay, now I'm going to hang up. A lot of you have stayed connected. I'm imagining we might have a couple of folks joining. Right, it's one o'clock. I'm going to put 90 seconds on my timer and hope that's enough for everybody to get resettled and resituated. If you're in a spot where you're able to turn on video, that adds some energy in the room. We appreciate that. I'm joining you from Cowley County today, and we just had a big rain blow through and some power flickers. I think we're past that. A little hard to say. 
Take about 15 more seconds here. Meanwhile, since you've got a few seconds, um, I was gone for a long time and it says, hi, this is Sarah at Bowersock and I will not be able to be there, but I want to let you know um, that I just want to know who, who is, what is Bowersock? What is that? It's the hydroelectric um, company that's right there on the, the dam. Oh, okay. She was in my group. All right. Thanks for the question, Catherine. Uh, so we knew because of the way today was arranged and because this was a, a rapid effort that there'd be some coming and going today. So we're glad for those of you who are on the coming side and we understand uh, that not everyone has been able to be here for every minute. Um, to remind you, the high level purpose today, what we're after is uh, establishing a framework to connect all the efforts in Lawrence Douglas County around housing and homelessness to identify areas where more investment or support might be needed and to provide information on funding that may be available and to think about how we braid it together. And this morning's work in support of that included spending some time on some um, definitions and terms and concepts uh, in hope to create a little bit of shared understanding around those ideas and how they're used. And there was a theme throughout that discussion that there are some terms that mean something to funders and mean other things to people in the community. And uh, we're not going to be the group to resolve that, but it's really helpful to pay attention to that. We also spent some time thinking about what are the very most important things to consider as we work together. And we spent some time doing a bit of an environmental scan, talking about what is happening already and what populations are being served, uh, where are some clear gaps and needs, and how is funding currently being used. The way we're planning to use this afternoon for this after lunch session, we anticipate staying together as a full group and we're going to hear from a couple of folks uh, specifically related to funding and funding opportunities. Uh, so we're going to be hearing from Christine and from Andy here in just a minute and having some conversation between and after them. Uh, we'll take a break this afternoon. And uh, after our break, we'll move to some more work that will again use small groups and we'll again have a process for uh, mapping that out. And uh, this evening, there's also going to be an opportunity for some folks to come together. Uh, Andy, can I turn to you for a moment to talk about this evening and what's happening? Um, sure. Um, I was planning on doing that a little later, but um, we are going to have uh, uh, with help from uh, Bert Nass and Justice Matters, we're going to have a uh, kind of a public listening session at the Community Health Building 
uh, in the meeting rooms there. Um, and we also have a Zoom link um, and there'll be a, a screen and an opportunity for um, folks to listen in if they'd like to do that. Um, that's gonna be from six o'clock to seven o'clock. And um, I'll put the, the link information in the um, chat box um, at some point here when, it's, when I have a chance to do that. Um, but it, it is just a, a community dialogue with um, people that have lived experience around homelessness. And um, uh, I, I don't think it'll be a very um, formal event, um, but it would be an opportunity for anybody that wanted to continue the dialogue that we're having today to um, uh, participate in further dialogue tonight. And we'll try to remember to mention that again at the end of the day in case there is a slightly different makeup of folks in the room. But thanks to the Justice Matters folks for um, making sure that that's happening. Are there questions about where we've been or what we're doing? Yeah, and thanks to Heather, and uh, it's really kind of folks to continue to let us know when you're able to be here and when you're not, and we're happy to have you here for whatever parts of that work um, you're available for. And you're seeing that a little bit in our team too. So Megan Stone has joined us uh, and uh, will continue to do a little bit of coming and going as we need to as, um, uh, continue to support this work. All right, so uh, Andy and Christine, have you arm wrestled to figure out who's talking first? Um, I believe, um, Christine, if you would like to start first with the um, Kansas Housing Resource information, um, and then I will we'll let you take some questions, and then I'll jump in and talk about overall state stuff. Yeah, that works. Fantastic. Okay. Welcome. Hello, let me get my PowerPoint up and share it. So, sorry, I'm a little slow, not too slow, but a little slow. That's okay. I don't even have a PowerPoint, Christine. You're way ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> this was bits and pieces that I got from other people. So am I sharing my screen now? It looks like it. Yes. You are, keep going. Okay, I am having a hard time getting this. Is it F5? Uh, sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm good at speaking. Apparently I'm not good at getting my um, PowerPoint. What is it that makes it bigger, F5? I would just use that, that little kind of tree stand looking thing on up in the red bar on the left-hand side. Christine, but yeah, where the saved button is, where it says auto save, there's like a disc for save. You click the little stand with the, with the play button. Here we go. All right, awesome. Oh, now you're on mute, Christine. <laughs> How can I be on mute? Now we can hear you. Now we can hear you. Because I stopped sharing, which is very odd. So I am going to 
halfway share my presentation, if that's okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, I'm not gonna make it big. For some reason that puts me on mute. So yes, thank you very much for having uh, Kansas Housing involved in this uh, homeless summit. We appreciate the opportunity to present on our specific home funding and the home funding that was in Lawrence earlier today. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the American Rescue Plan. Um, I'm the division director for Kansas Housing for our Community Solutions um, division. Just for your information, that includes programs such as ESG that we heard about, weatherization, community services block grant, um, our tenant-based rental assistance, and our um, first-time homebuyer program. And did I mention weatherization? I might have missed that one. So we have a number of programs that assist persons in different ways um, improve their living conditions. So the programs I'm gonna talk about today with the American Rescue Plan are the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, the home additional money that we're gonna be getting, and the um, Homeowner Assistance Fund. Now the Emergency Rental Assistance Program is funded through the Department of Treasury. We currently have a, I'm having glitches because it's kind of lightning out here guys, so my apologies. We currently have emergency rental housing that is the CARA program that we are offering. The previous program we had was the KEP program. Now we're hearing that we're going to be receiving on top of the funding that we um, are running the CARA program with. This will be the second round and it will be similar to our current program. We're estimated to get um, 153 million for Kansas. Our current CARA program ends September 22nd. And this new funding that we haven't received yet is slated to go until September 2025. So that'll be a nice transition uh, once we get that funding. Now, again, we're going to be receiving funding in the amount of the um, uh, for the home program. This is going to be funded through the um, HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development. The funding will come to our, um, between our development division and maybe my division. We're expected to receive about 23 million. Again, it's for property development and potentially TBRA. Uh, this funding is slated to um, have a long expenditure period too until September 2025. Now, the rules have not been issued, thus guidance is pending. So it's very limited at this time with the, the additional home funds. Um, so that moves to our next potential funding opportunity with the Department of Treasury, the Homeowner 
Assistance Fund. This is a program that I know is sorely needed in Kansas because we get so many phone calls for persons that are calling in about CARA, but they're not renters, they're actually homeowners. So the purpose of the program is to prevent mortgage delinquencies, defaults, foreclosures, displacements, and the homeownership um, piece would kick in if they're if the owner is experiencing har hardship after January 21st, 2020. So that is a COVID-related um, hardship. Kansas housing has not necessarily been designated. It's my understanding at this time, limited understanding at this time, that the funds will go through the office um, the recovery office at the state level and that we would need to apply for it. So this is all still very limited knowledge. We should be getting the state as a whole, not necessarily Kansas housing, no less than 57 million per state. Um, the starting time is not, it's request within 45 days of announcement, I'm assuming, and it will be ending September, 2025. The fund or the program has income limits of 60% less than 100% AMI or 100% median income for US, which is whichever is greater. And at the time of program development, I'm sure that that will be more clarified with income charts. Um, also, 40% would need to be uh, socially disadvantaged individuals. And this is the um, definition of that um, term. Again, it can be used to pay for mortgage payments, reinstate a mortgage principal reduction, interest rate reductions, utilities, uh, internet service, insurance, HOA fees, and this is all what it could pay for. We haven't developed a program yet. Um, so those are the ones that Kansas Housing could be associated with. I have heard that there's another um, piece that could assist persons that are um, associated with uh, Section 8 vouchers. These will be, there is um, funding going to the housing authorities um, to assist with vouchers. Uh, we received very limited information from HUD about that. They are formulating guidance. There's another program in the works that could go to DCF to assist persons with water. Um, but again, we've been in limited conversations about that program. And I would assume that any information that we have or we know will link to the website or we can uh, send you information when requested if we find any um, other um, types of programs that can assist persons. So that was a very quick high level overview. 
Um, are there any questions at a high level? <laughs> yeah, thank you, Christine. Um, uh, we're, I think I said this, we're gonna stay in the larger group. So let's first look for some questions that are just about the content of what Christine shared so far. So what do you all need to better understand? Hi, Christine. I have a question about how care can be used for folks who are experiencing homelessness currently and moving them into housing. Um, is it something where we need, is it only prevention funding or is it also for folks who are currently homeless? Um, CARA is not for persons that are homeless. Was that the question? Mm -hmm. It's to, it's rental assistance program, um, assistance. So persons that might be behind on their rent um, and having a hardship paying their rent. The homeless type of assistance would be for persons um, that would work with our ESG program. Is there any way if we were to get folks into housing with some kind of rental assistance that we could port in care assistance afterwards? And the reason why I'm asking is it's such a huge amount of money. And across the state of Kansas, we've got, you know, this program is going to serve 100,000 Kansans. And across the state, we've got about 5,000 to 10,000 who are homeless. And so it's really a shame that the program doesn't assist people with exiting homelessness. Um, is there any way we can braid in this assistance to help people exit, make a permanent, um, sustainable transition to home, to permanent housing? It's my understanding that that is not part of the regulations that what it can be used for is to help those that are currently behind, um, behind in their rent. Should they become behind in their rent, then they could apply as long as it's a COVID related um, hardship and those, you know, they would have to qualify for CARA. I don't see at this time any leeway in the federal regulations to do that. Christine, I don't know if you can see the chat. Jill has um, dropped this in here. Um, whether the city of Lawrence would be the lead agency or applicant for any of these programs, similar to the ESG grant that Danelle talked about earlier today. Um, so we are administering CAP and then our CARA program at our, um, at our agency. Should we receive the second round of CARA funding and the funding for the homeowner assistance program, it will be funded at our, out of our um, office. Should we receive, when we receive our home funds, that will go through the regular development um, process like any other rental development or our tenant-based rental assistance. So ESG um, granted out the money in their regular fashion of, it goes to the, to the cities to coordinate the programs locally. That's why it was funded at the city level that way. 
So each program has a little different way of distributing the money. Thank you. Other questions about the content? I don't have a question, but more just a comment. If, if there's flexibility, if there's flexibility in the second round of, if you get the second round of the care funds, you know, I know you may not have the ability to do this because it is federal funding. It's a federal program, but what we're hearing with those CARA funds right now is, you know, our the Housing Stabilization Collaborative is the, an agency locally that is trying to assist folks in applying for and accessing those dollars. Um, and what they're hearing, and they've communicated a couple times with uh, Monice, is that it's it's like it's it takes six to eight weeks um, to process some of those, and um, I think that. You know, we've gotten creative with some funding, um, some funding from the city from uh, and some other sources to help bridge that gap. But if there's a way for local organizations um, for larger communities like ours to be able to access or administer those funds a little quicker, um, it'd be interesting to know if that, if that was an opportunity or not. I'll pass, I'll pass that along. I have heard that we have a consultant that's coming in to assist with um, getting some applications moving. Yeah. I know the parameters of that, but I'll also pass along um, your comments. I appreciate that. We, um, we, had a good, we had a good conversation with our judges um, in district court yesterday about how we can be doing everything we can to prevent folks from being evicted. Um, and Eviction. we talked specifically about the, the timeline, that six to eight weeks and making sure that at least we're giving them the doc, the clients, the doctor or the landlords, the documentation so that they can and give that to the judges to prove that they've got at least a, um, a pre-approved application. Sorry, I'll stop talking about that process. Thank you. Yeah, and, and Jill, don't feel bad. I think that's exactly the kind of discussion we want to have right now. So if, if you know, if other folks have, um, you know, questions or ideas um, about um, these different federal funding sources, we're, we're happy to hear them. We get so many, we get so many phone calls from people around the state. So I, I appreciate that you also hearing the types of things that we're hearing. Uh, the home ownership piece, uh, I've been tied to the first time home buyer program mostly in my career in um, with Kansas housing. So I always get called directly about assistance with people behind in their mortgage. So I'm looking forward to that program and hoping we can uh, assist a number of people. So my apologies, I heard someone speaking and I overspoke, so thank you. Don, was that you? It was me and Christine, you might've said this and I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm toggling between two events today. So if you did, please forgive me. And um, when you guys launched here a few, year, a few years ago, yeah, feels like it, right? Feels uh, like it. Yeah, just giving you some grace there. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think Ryan had reported you had like 4,000 applications within a seven day period for like 15 million. So the HP is a significant need is that's, and my question really here is, is that, and that was paraphrasing the amounts, but is that still about the flow of what you guys are being inundated with? Is that still constant or just that first week or do you not? I haven't heard. Um, 
we have another KHRC staff on. I don't know if she's heard how many there. Um, it's just curiosity. I mean, I, I about fell out of my chair when Ryan said that, because I mean, you know, it's needed, right? And you know, sometimes our challenge is to disseminate information to those in need of, the, of what the funds are, but apparently that spread like wildfire because I think you said in seven days, it was like 4,000 applications, which obviously is leading to your, the backlog and the timeliness of the thing. So hopefully, um, but I was, that was just a curiosity, curiosity question, Christine, I'm sorry to interrupt you for that. No, that's, that's fine. I wished um, I would have gotten that information. I was um, concerned about getting the PowerPoint together. <laughs> have you heard any updates? I was going to say, you know, the little birdies that I, that, I, that tell me things are going over on over there, that means it hasn't slowed down. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's the pace that it's we're still processing yeah. in. I still assumed as much. It was just like, as if my own personal knowledge and understanding, I, I know you guys probably are going to be inundated for a while, but I just was trying to gauge how bad <laughs> it is going to be for you. So thank you. Other questions or thoughts about what you've heard and what it means for your community? I just, so you know, to follow up a little bit with that, Dawn, I think they were having problems with the software and they've kind of worked through some of those problems, it's my understanding. So hopefully things will start moving a little quicker. It doesn't really directly impact us. However, what happens is if, you know, I know that if you guys are inundated, then we're going to get kind of the overflow. Because what will happen is people want immediate assistance they want immediate reduction so sometimes us just being able to say it's coming it is is very helpful especially you know we get agencies we get individuals we get all kinds so uh again it was purely selfish but it valuable just the same so not not selfish at all because you guys are getting those calls that i'm also getting <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're dialing numbers and uh, we understand there's a lot of need out there, so I know why they're doing it. They're really yeah. trying to get some assistance to help them. So we we completely understand. Uh, Christine, I, I know you're going to be on with us for uh, at least a little while longer. At some point, would you leave some contact information in the chat in case people have follow-up questions for you? Sure, and I'll put a PDF of the... PowerPoint presentation since I sort of muddled through trying to get that to uh, sh show correctly. Very helpful. Andy, can we turn to you to add some more uh, information to this discussion? Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. And Christine, do you want to um, stop sharing your screen and then um, I can see more people's faces? Okay, I thought I did. So I don't know how to get back to that <laughs> an f today completely maybe maybe zane can help us shut it down maybe i don't know take it away from me please it says thank you <laughs> you're very welcome all right appreciate so, your patience yeah so i already already 
told you guys that uh, I've, I've been very impressed with everybody that had slides for today because I don't have any slides. Um, but I, I did spend the last 16 hours of this week um, in uh, appropriation hearings on the Senate and the House side um, where KLRD kind of reviewed all of the COVID-19 federal relief that's been provided um, in the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, and so I'm gonna kind of go over that with you now. And then what, I, what I'll hope to do is um, maybe get this document scanned so that I can then have WSU distribute it to everybody so that you can see what's, what's in the document yourself. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the overarching thing is, is that the, the ARPA, which is the American Rescue Plan Act, um, it, it was enacted in March 11th, right? So for those of us that work at the state, this is our third round of COVID relief money that has come uh, into the state. Our, you know, we, we had CARES money first, um, and then we had the... Um, CRR money, and now we've got ARPA, right? And the, the CARES Act money came out um, about this time last year, and then we had to have that all spent originally by like December 31st. Um, there were some extensions provided to that, but by the time that the federal government got the word out to the states that there was going to be an extension, most of us had already spent our money anyway. Um, and that mostly went to immediate relief to um, really try and keep providers uh, open, um, to allow them to purchase um, protective equipment um, and, uh, and to help uh, employers and, and other folks with a significant amount of cash influx, right? Um, this second round of funding, the CRR funding, that really came through um, as a result of the bill that President Trump signed in December. Um, those funds have already been sort of awarded. Um, Christine was talking about their, their current care program. That program uh, is funded out of that set of money currently. And then we now have this third set of money that's coming in that is our um, ARPA funds. Um, those ARPA funds um, nationally are um, $1.9 trillion. That's trillion with a T, right? Um, and there's a lot more flexibility and how states are able to use those funds. Um, and a significant amount of that money also passes through to um, our local governments. Um, and in some cases, um, entities like the housing authorities or the school districts. So um, we know that there are basically three primary means that that ARPA money is gonna pass through, right? So we're gonna see that there will be state and local recovery funds um, that provides around $350 billion in discretionary relief to state, county, and city governments. Um, there should be funds made available to the federal agencies for distribution to state agencies. 
So that means HUD, uh, SAMHSA um, are the two agencies that we'll probably talk the most about. Um, but those two entities are gonna receive federal dollars to provide um, supplemental or emergency port, emergency support programs uh, that have specifically defined purposes. And then there's also gonna be funds that are made available to federal agencies for distribution directly to local government, businesses, nonprofit organizations, um, often in the form of grants. So um, in Kansas, we're currently estimating that there will be over $4.9 billion, that's billion with a B, um, in COVID-19 relief as part of ARPA. So the federal agencies um, will continue to determine those allocations and guidance, and we have not received, as Christine was pointing out, a lot of that information yet at the state level. Um, we are working with the recovery office um, and at the state level, and also a consulting group um, that's been hired by the state to assist in um, planning how to use all these funds. So currently uh, in Kansas, um, we're estimating that there'll be 1.6 billion for the state government um, for discretionary purposes. There's gonna be 1.2 billion for education, uh, 989 million, so almost a billion for county and city governments, uh, also for discretionary purposes. 412 million for social services, 250 million for housing assistance. Uh, and those would include the funds that Christine was talking about today. Um, 209 million for healthcare. And um, ARPA also is offering additional funds um, for states that implement Medicaid expansion. I'm honestly not, uh, I don't have a lot of faith in the idea that we're gonna have Medicaid expansion happen here in Kansas. Um, but if we did, um, there would be an additional 5% increase of the federal Medicaid, sorry, federal medical assistance percentage or FMAP um, that would help cover um, folks that are on Medicaid for the types of services that um, we're likely to talk about today for people with disabilities. So um, what I'm gonna talk about next are just some kind of highlights of some things that I think um, are true about these funds. And um, if you bear with me and sort of understand that um, we don't, we, we're still waiting on a lot of information at this point. Um, but that's a good thing because that means that we're having this summit now at a point in time where we can be creative and come up with some ideas uh, for our framework uh, that can then be proposed to the state um, for consideration. So Number one is that, um, <clears throat> as Christine pointed out, these funds are gonna be available for three years. So they don't all have to be spent uh, as quickly as the CARES funds did. Uh, the CARES funds, we really had to like figure out a way to get the money out and get it out fast. 
Um, we now have the time, um, and Matthew mentioned this in, a, in an earlier planning meeting, but we can talk about what our immediate needs are, what our short-term needs are, uh, and maybe what some of our longer-term needs might be around sustainable um, development of infrastructure, those kinds of things. There's um, intended uses of the funds as just kind of a blanket are to respond to the public health emergency and its negative economic impacts, including assistance to households, small businesses, nonprofits, and impacted industries, um, providing premium pay to eligible government workers that are performing essential work during COVID-19, uh, or providing grants to employers with employees who perform essential work, providing government services to the extent of lost revenue from COVID-19 public health emergency um, relate, relative to revenues in the fiscal year prior to the pandemic, and making investments in water, sewer, or broadband infrastructure, right? So some of the things that I think are interesting for us is first off the 1.6 billion that's coming to the state for the recovery fund. So in this case, the treasury will provide direct relief to the state government um, that's based on our equal distribution amongst all states and partly on the state share of the unemployment uh, that they experienced in the three month period ending December, 2020. Um, so Kansas calculations are that that's gonna be $1.6 billion for Kansas. Um, and just as an example, um, at KDADS, I'm anticipating that we're gonna request $300 million out of that fund to help cover issues like limited access to care, workforce shortages, and support for school-aged children. Um, then there's another 564 million that's gonna go to the county governments in Kansas. Um, I don't have an estimate for Douglas County yet, but um, these are gonna be typically provided, um, uh, it says with no county receiving less than what would be typically provided through the Federal Community Development Block Grant Entitlement Formula. So, you know, um, Jill, if you're able to poke around and find out what that formula means for Douglas County, um, we might be able to figure out how much of that 564 million is coming to the county. Um, just for references, in this document, they cite that Johnson County is estimated to receive 116.8 million. Um, and our smallest county, Greeley County, is expected to receive 240,000. Um, and the way that will work is the treasury will send out 50% of the funds um, shortly. Like we'll probably receive those in the next few weeks, I imagine. Um, and then the remaining 50% will be paid out um, a year from now, basically. Um, in addition to that, there's 251.6 million that's going to metropolitan cities. 
um, for discretionary use. Um, so that's direct relief to nine cities in Kansas. So for Lawrence, um, the KLRD estimate is that Lawrence will receive 18.9 million in discretionary funding. Um, and again, they're gonna receive basically 50% of that this year and 50% of it next year. Um, so then additionally, um, at the local level, <clears throat> um, there's 830 million for K through 12 education. Um, and these are um, part of their, you know, like everything's in a bucket, right? So this is part of their elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund. And states have to allocate 90% of that funding to local education entities, right? So that means that the school districts here in Douglas County will all be receiving um, a amount of funding that's proportionate to what they receive under the Title I of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Um, so that's their Title I uh, title one is the mechanism that they're using to allocate the funds, but the funds are in this EE or excuse me, ESSER bucket, right? So the local education agencies or the school districts are then required to allocate 20% of that funding towards learning loss programs. Um, and, um, Funding can be used for preparing and responding to COVID-19, um, addressing student needs, et cetera, right? Um, but then out of the 10% that's remaining at the state agency, 5% um, has to be used to address learning loss, 1% for summer programs, 1% for after-school programs. And then they have, um, about a half of 1% that they can use for their admin costs. So there's likely to be a very small amount of funding at the state level for education. Um, but we are hoping that some of that will be used for um, behavioral health needs of the kids. Um, so all of that funding um, will be coming through the local districts. And then um, there'll be funding for higher education, which will probably, you know, go at some level into KU. Um, there'll be funding for um, education of individuals with disabilities. Um, there'll be funding for emergency assistance to um, non-public schools. But interestingly, there's also, as part of the ESSR fund, um, there's 5.4 million that's set aside for education of homeless children um, that, can be, that can be used to provide wraparound services and ensure that the homeless children are able to attend and fully participate in school activities in light of the challenges of COVID-19. Um, that funding is still coming to the state. Um, there's 2.6 million for libraries. Um, 
with the idea that again, um, a lot of that funding is allocated for the library services and the technology um, at the libraries. Um, there's an emergency connectivity fund that um, oversees uh, telecommunication equipment, wireless internet hotspots, modems, routers, computers um, for use by students and library patrons. Um, that goes, I think, usually through the FCC for um, uh, that program. There's uh, $133 million for child care and development block grants, um, $213 million for child care stabilization, $43 million for low-income uh, energy assistance program, or LIHEAP, that many of you are probably familiar with, um, $8 million for Head Start, $5.1 million for uh, emergency assistance, that can support one-time benefits such as cash and vouchers for eligible families for, with low incomes experiencing a crisis. Um, and um, that initial allocation is based on the share of children and expenditures for our TANF program from 2019. Um, there's five million for child care entitlements, um, two point three million for community-based child abuse prevention, um, nine hundred seventy-six thousand for child abuse prevention state grants, uh, family violence prevention. Um, what else we got here? Um, Christine mentioned the, the water program. So there's a low income drinking water and wastewater energy assistance um, fund that's um, gonna go through HHS. Um, that's 500 million um, for grants to states to support water assistance programs. Um, that's intended to assist low-income households by providing funds to operators of public water systems. So in Lawrence, that would be the city. Um, and funds would be allocated by a formula um, for that. Um, for community living, there's 6.4 million for congregate and home-delivered meals. Um, that'll come through KDADS on our aging side uh, and through the AAAs. Um, there's 4 million for supportive services. Um, this is uh, supplemental funding that again, will go through our local AAAs to provide support services for people over 60. Um, there's 1.2 million for family caregiver services. So that's funding that'll be provided to KDADS um, and go through our AAAs that'll help support um, family members that are caregivers and provide in-home um, or community care to anybody with that uh, uh, is providing those services to an older adult, or it will also um, compensate grandparents who are relative caregivers for children or disabled adults. Um, there's um, some money for disease prevention, um, some money for long-term care abusements uh, that'll go through KDADS. 
Um, for healthcare, there is an abundance of funding that's related to health centers and um, other services. For our mental health and substance abuse block grants at KDADS, um, we're gonna receive 20.4 million um, that will help with um, the types of support services that um, our, the population we're trying to serve needs. Um, there's um, additional funding that's gonna go to HHS um, and it'll be made available for um, grants that will address things like training of mental health and behavioral health workforce, um, expanding EBPs, um, addressing surge capacity related to mental and behavioral health needs, um, providing services, and then expanding um, uh, behavioral health preventative and crisis intervention services. So that's 50 million um, that'll be available uh, nationwide. Um, for community-based um, SUD grants, um, there's 30 million that'll be available nationwide. Um, and then there's also opportunities for um, mental and behavioral health training um, through HRSA to help with professional development. Um, and workforce development. Um, and additional money for WIC and SNAP uh, and CSFP, um, which are all programs that assist with nutrition uh, for low-income families. And then um, for economic development, there's a significant amount of money available for that as well. Um, and there's some specific funds that are targeted for um, industries that were particularly um, impacted by COVID. Um, and let's see what else is on here. Um, some labor stuff. Uh, some law enforcement and justice security type issues. And then um, the housing assistance, the CARA program, is, as we've stated already, is expected to receive 152.1 million for emergency rental assistance, um, 56.6 million for the homeowner assistance fund and 39.3 million for the Home Investment Partnerships Program. And then there's also uh, for EFSP, uh, which is sometimes used um, for um, shelter expenses and things like that. Um, there is 2.2 million that'll be coming into the state, um, but we don't know how much um, would be coming directly to Douglas County or Lawrence. Um, TBA is, TBRA is going to um, probably receive additional uh, adjustments for the Section 8 renewals. Um, there's specific funds for Native American housing relief um, that will be provided through the Native American housing block grant. 
uh, and the Indian Community Block Grant. Um, there's uh, also some stuff that HUD's going to be doing around fair housing initiatives programs uh, and housing counseling um, through HUD. So that's kind of the majority of the stuff that I think is likely to impact the kinds of things that we're talking about in the summit. Um, and again, like we're, we're still working on what our overall request for the agency at KDADS is gonna be for our, um, yeah, out of that one point, whatever billion that the state's, 1.6 billion that the state's getting. Um, for discretionary costs. So I anticipating that KDADS will probably be um, asking for a significant portion of that funding so that we can use it to um, provide services to those that have disabilities. So that was a lot. Um, what kind of questions do you guys got? Yeah, thank you, Andy. I, I'm gonna suggest, uh, let's take a one minute uh, break. You're welcome to turn your video off. If you're in a place where you can stand or stretch or both do that. I'm setting the timer for one minute. Sorry, Andy, what did you say the 1.6 billion specifically uh, is going for your first big number. I don't know if you might be stretching. <laughs> I was stretching, but uh, the 1.6 billion is the amount of money that the recovery office in Kansas is going to receive that is for discretionary spending. Thank you. All right, take about 15 more seconds. All right, and as you're settling back in, let's continue what Steve did. What are some questions you have about the content of what Andy shared, things that you need to better understand? Hopefully I did not stun you all into silence. Well, I love funding, so I've got questions if, as others more smarter than I am have questions. So you're saying there's uh, 1.9 trillion, right? In total to the 50 states. So I divide the 50 and, and then I get 38 billion per state. So is it like a per capita that you see this estimate of 4.9 billion is by our, our population that will get? Yeah, so the... Yeah, so the, let me see if I can pull that back here. So 1.9 trillion total in federal spending. And um, you said we estimate we'll get four. four yeah. and so, so in Kansas, all told through all of the federal programs, they're estimating that, that Kansas will receive 4.9 billion of that 1.9 trillion. Right, which is about, uh, you know, eight, 
eight percent or 11 12 percent of what in other words you took took 1.9 trillion divide it by 50 you get 38 billion per state so what i'm wondering is how they allocate is it by number of people in the state yeah, yeah well Yes, I mean, like, because there's so many different programs involved in this bill, there are different allocation methods for different programs. But generally speaking, Kansas is about 1% of the population of the country. So I okay. usually use that to kind of make my guess about how much money Kansas is going to get whenever the big federal dollar number gets announced. But this this $4.9 billion uh, is work that KLRD did, which is our Kansas Legislative Research Department. Um, and so they dug a lot deeper than I would normally dig to make my own estimates. Um, but this 4.9 billion is, is the predicted amount that's gonna come to all levels of government in Kansas, all private businesses, all uh, nonprofits, et cetera. You had mentioned in another meeting that this amount of money available to us in the state of Kansas hasn't been seen since the 1970s? Well, maybe even longer than that. Um, I, I, I would really kind of consider this to be a, a once in a lifetime kind of situation, so. Opportunity is in gathering together the best proposal, as I would currently say, to make you guys look good. Hey, here's how we're gonna spend the money effectively. Right. I want to. I want you guys to come up with a wonderful framework that I can take to the recovery office that will convince them that we want to spend money in Lawrence and Douglas County. Andy, uh, and I guess Steve, are you done with your question? Okay, great. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, um, you know, you listed a lot of uh, programs. Oh, it just started pouring on us here in Lawrence. That's less. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, you listed a lot of a lot of programs. Um, I think probably a lot of kind of existing uh, program structures, funding funding streams. Um, are there any? Is there anything that stands out in your analysis as kind of unique opportunities that maybe this group or or we should be homing in on? Because um, a lot of the a lot of what it sounded like was kind of just surge funding and existing infrastructure. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, for me, I think the part that really stands out is the discretionary funds that are going to be coming to the different levels of government. And so I, I think we have an opportunity here to um, leverage those discretionary funds at the state level um, to help support um, programming at the local level. And, um, and so I, I feel like it's, um, it's certainly, I think, the mindset of the recovery office and um, the consultants that we work with that we have a lot of opportunity here to be creative about how we use those discretionary funds. Um, and it's great to have all the surge funding uh, in the programs, but like Christine was describing, those programs have a lot of limitations on them. So when we're talking about buckets of funding, Right. There are some very specific buckets that are going to provide funding that will help our cause. And there are also these very large buckets of discretionary money, which are um, much less confined in terms of how they can be used. Does that answer your question, Brandon? Yeah, okay. 
So for, for example, like I said, we're, we're planning on requesting for BHS about 300 million in those discretionary funds. So for the purpose of, oh, one thing I want to ask you really quickly, Andy, was did you mention um, housing choice vouchers in your um, list that you just yeah. read? Yeah, the, the TBRA, okay. TBRA program, Section 8 vouchers. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Because housing authorities are going to get um, a, a specific influx of vouchers for um, assisting people who are exiting homelessness or have a history of homelessness. So that's really great. And I think we want to, I don't see Shannon on this call, but I think we do want to engage Shannon um, around a program model that's going to, how, how are we going to use those vouchers locally? And then how are we going to provide support for those folks? Because Section 8 and Housing Choice doesn't typically port in with the supportive services that um, clients need to be successful on Section 8. And then that kind of leads me to my second question, uh, which is really a question for all, all of us to consider as we're planning or coming up with the framework, which I hope is going to be rooted in best practices, especially housing first practices. I think if we're going to achieve, achieve our goal of ending chronic homelessness, we have to all be really rooted in a housing first framework and um, an understanding of those principles. Um, however, for some of our, um, you know, uh, folks that locally who were the most concerned about and have the highest barriers to housing, those people are going to need time unlimited support. And a lot of this discretionary funding that we're talking about is going to have a sunset, um, uh, whether in three and some of these programs in five years. So, um, and lots of the folks um, between now and then we'll just continue to need support for living independently in housing. And so um, we wanna develop some models and um, frameworks that are self-sustaining um, over the long haul for our clients. Um, some, for some folks, we'll be able to leave a permanent supportive housing opportunity and move on to Section 8. And for other folks, that will never be um, a possibility for them. And so I think I just wanted to set that as a goal of the framework is um, we, we have an opportunity to establish new programs and establish new models. Um, but part of those models is having an understanding of how many people locally are we gonna have to be supporting for, for the duration of their lives um, in permanent supportive housing. And Renee, were, were there responses you were looking for? No, I'm just I'm just establishing kind of like the challenge. Right. <laughs> so that's it. So let's keep going with questions or thoughts about how to apply what you have heard this afternoon. What does this mean for your community and your stakeholders? I think it's important to try and figure out all the different types of funding streams that will be looking at using this discretionary funding and to try to at least get some kind of amount that's realistically applicable to the domain that we're talking about here today. So homeless and housing services, because um, I know that there's going to be a lot of other 
types of projects and or services and sectors and agencies that some of these dollars are going to be also targeted for. Um, so any project we do, we'll, we'll, we would like to, I mean, it'd be good to have a, an amount that we can realistically expect to, to be able to utilize. Other than the 1.6 billion that's coming to the state for discretionary funding. And I know Andy, you said that there are some calculations that have not been done, for example, on the county level that would determine approximately how much funding would be coming there. Mm -hmm. Is there some way for us to get a, a decent ballpark figure on the total level of discretionary funding that is going to be available and that perhaps would be available locally, uh, i.e. for Douglas County in this? Yeah. And, and so, Matthew, this is the way I'd, I'd like us to think about it, at least for the next, uh, you know, 24 hours or so, is that don't limit yourself to a dollar amount. Sure. Right. Build a system that you think Lawrence and Douglas County need, and then tell me how much that costs. Yeah. Right. Um, because what, what we really want to do, I think, is... Um, be able to present to the recovery office, right? Detailed information about how these funds can and will be utilized to address chronic homelessness, right? And, and that, that the impact of that is that we can demonstrate how we are leveraging those discretionary dollars um, to the grant funds that are available through the, you know, through HUD or through um, uh, uh, SAMHSA, right? Uh, we can use that discretionary money to leverage local support from the city and the county, possibly the school district. Um, and it, it starts to build uh, momentum, right? Um, but I literally am going to be trying to figure out how to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. I'll, I'll put it out here now. I'd say just from the get-go, we need 300 plus dedicated units with support staff. At least half of those are going to have to be, as Renee said, long-term, possibly lifelong support units that are going to be there forever for those clients. The other half can be used on more of a housing first and then relocate or transitional basis. Mm -hmm. um, but at least 300 units, um, a central social service center for all of us to have a presence, and, a, and that is a one-stop shop, and uh, a way for us to coordinate a lot more easily. Uh, we can just shout across the hall, i.e., in that situation, instead of, you know, doing the kind of things we're doing today, um, and is also designed to meet a, a few different, you know, SUD, mental health, as well as just families getting on their feet, et cetera. So three or four different target groups um, in different, you know, probably three or four different larger projects around town. Some of those should be apartments. Some of those should probably be smaller footprint houses that don't share walls. Some of those should be, you know, uh, a wide selectrum or a selection or continuum of housing that is involved in that 300 units um, that meet multiple kinds of needs. Um, some people are okay living with folks in an apartment style setting. Some people are not. Um, so I would say 300 plus minimum. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
is a good number, I think, and and I think we have a lot of data data that can justify that. So we can kind of come together and and um, use our data to put um, a, a framework or do a needs analysis with that. Um, and there's a lot of um, Again, kind of going back to how are we going to support people over the long haul, for instance, support 300 people over the long haul, and then also how do we prevent um, that number from growing over time. So that should be a part of our framework as well, because if we really only, if you only get a once in a generation chance to establish this base of supportive housing, then you want to do what you need to do locally to prevent folks from um, uh, from that number ballooning. And um, certainly in Lawrence, we have a great affordable housing initiative and like a uh, foundation to work off of. Um, but again, on the supportive services side, one of the interesting program models that I've heard people discuss is a supportive services trust. So this is something that I've heard a lot of um, uh, sign up at webinars that's been pitched lately. It's just like we have a housing trust. Can we establish some kind of a endowment or some kind of um, uh, base for providing care for folks on a housing first basis? It's an idea like that. We really need some innovative ideas like that in a state where Medicaid expansion is a nil possibility. So um, I just wanted to offer that as well. So we're kind of thinking prevention, um, upstream, downstream, immediately remedying homelessness as quick as we can for folks. And then over um, a a generations period. How are we going to support people um, for that length of time? I, uh, I'd like to add on to that. I think that creates a great discussion point for the city and the county to figure out how best to support those issues moving on. Because you're right, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This is why I think Matthew's correct in that we need to utilize that to, to build the structures, to secure actual locations, brick and mortar places for people to live and get the whole situation up and running. But that means that the city and the county need to come to some kind of agreement where they can figure out how they are paying for this kind of thing to maintain it in the future. Um, and so I think that's going to be key to figuring out where we go from there. Thank you, David. I mentioned in the chat, we're within five minutes of a next break. So if you have thoughts or questions you've not been able to get in, uh, please jump in now or use the raise hand feature or ask them in the chat. Um. Craig, do you want to talk about uh, your comment in the chat box about uh, strategic outcomes? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Craig Owens, uh, city manager um, and a recent graduate of uh, all three programs that Joyce and Seth put on. So um, I wanted to show my KLC chops there. Um, the uh, I, I'm very excited about this. Um, and I think, Andy, your prompt here is going to what I kind of thought this was about, this two days is about, is defining you know, what does real success look like? What do we need? What do we need and the people need of our community to be successful in this? Start with that and then work out 
you know, how do we achieve that result? And we're in a historic time. Why, why limit ourselves with the incrementalism of starting with where can we, where can we scrounge the money up? Right. So I think it's extremely exciting uh, and, and it really is, a, this is a game changer. So I was just excited that this, this was uh, the conversation and where it's headed with so many great people that have been doing such heroic work in our community for so long here all, all together. Yeah. And I, and I, I do want to point out to Craig, just so that everybody can hear me say it, like my, my intention here is not to create a pool of funding that's competitive, right? Like what I want to do is fund a plan. And if we can, we can use that as our vision for what we're trying to accomplish. I, I appreciate it because I don't want people to feel like you have to squabble over whose population is going to get served first or, you know, um, you know, whether or not we need nickels and dimes in one, one area or another, because I, there's plenty of money to go around right now. And um, I think we can fund something that's comprehensive. One of the questions in chat is, can you articulate the long-term cost savings to end homelessness when addressing this issue in balance with all the other requests? Yeah, well, we certainly will make that point to the recovery office, right? Um, and if there's information that you guys want to include um, in sort of your final proposal, right, um, please feel free to do that. I, I kind of structured this where we were looking at assessment and then planning um, and developing your, your need statement, right, is, is part of the goal here, right? But the other side of the coin is you also want to look at um, the sustainability of it and what the long-term impact is, right? Um, and, you know, we, we'll hear some tomorrow about um, kind of the impacts that Housing First can have um, on savings. Um, we'll hear a little bit about ACT teams and how those function and this kind of savings that those generate. Um, right now we're in the middle of um, some really major um, changes that are happening at the state level around behavioral health. And, um, you know, we're soon gonna be moving towards a structure of having um, uh, CCBHC models or programs, um, which are um, really designed to use evidence-based practices, address crisis needs, um, and focus on um, really kind of reducing um, the readmission to hospitals, utilizations of emergency rooms, those kinds of things. So those are savings that will be seen as part of that systems change. Um, but additionally, there's gonna be a significant um, impact in just providing these housing first programs. Um, and I, I don't remember uh, which, you know, how long ago the article came out, but I remember years ago in Lawrence, there was a study done on just like one homeless individual and what the costs to the county and the city were um, for that individual. And it's a significant amount of money. And if we can find ways to uh, keep folks stable in their own homes, um, we'll, we will really be putting a dent in a lot of the, uh, the systems. 
and I think Lawrence and uh, Douglas County have already done an immense amount of work on this in a lot of other areas where they've been investing in behavioral health as a way to um, produce cost savings in other areas. So I feel like I'm preaching to the choir when I talk about it, but we'll definitely be making that case at the state level. Very good. We do want to honor the breaks. Uh, if you want to keep the chat going over the break, um, it's there for you. But we're going to pause and reconvene at 2.45 p.m. When we come back, please be prepared to do some more work in small groups. All right. See everybody in 15. I have reposted our goal for today and um, trying to do that in an effort to make sure everyone's on the same page. I know there have been a few people who have joined us this afternoon and uh, later this afternoon. So uh, again, we are trying to work toward creating a framework to connect all of the efforts in Lawrence Douglas County and identify areas where more investment and support may be needed and provide information on funding that may be available and how to braid it together. So we've been talking about a lot of things today and a lot of uh, data gathering has been done. We have one final component of data gathering and idea gathering that we'd like to ask you to do together. And we're going to do that in a typical, but maybe fairly typical way that some of you have experienced. We've put a little bit of a spin on it, but most of you have been through what we would call a squat analysis. We're gonna call this um, a, a mixture of a SWOT and a SOAR analysis. And so your, your uh, work will be called a SORT analysis, S-O-A-R-T. And for those of you who have been through a SWOT or a SOAR, you know that you are trying to do things like highlight strengths. You're trying to look for opportunities. You're trying to elevate aspirations, um, look at how to measure results and then acknowledge any threats to the work you're trying to do. How we are going to do this work is we've created a worksheet and you will have one of us from CEI in your breakout group. We'll put you in breakout groups. And we will be helping guide you through those components of the SWOT analysis. Now, some of the work on this SWOT analysis, you likely will feel like you've done already. And to help you with that, we'll post in the chat the uh, combination of efforts that you put together from this morning's work in your breakouts. And so you won't have to recreate the wheel on everything. However, we would like you to think about uh, for example, if you talk about highlighting strengths of the current Lawrence Douglas County housing and homelessness efforts, you're not necessarily naming a program, you're naming some strengths about the system, your strengths about what you are currently doing, not necessarily the how, although there may be some strengths in the how you are coming together or working together. When you're looking at opportunities, um, I want you to think about not only identifying opportunities where you really could make progress, but what is holding you back also. So that's on this worksheet. And uh, when you want to elevate aspirations, which I've heard some of you name some of those, especially in that last segment, I just want you to think about elevating aspirations for what success could look like. And for opportunities and aspirations, if you'll start to think about what are things that you could do in the short term, what are things that could be done in the midterm, and things that could be done in the long term to address um, housing homelessness needs. 
And then you'll be brainstorming on some of the metrics, specifically how can we really measure the results of what uh, we are proposing to do. And then acknowledging any threats to successful housing or homelessness efforts in Lawrence Douglas County. All of this work you are doing today will be ready and available for the group who is working on um, this framework and planning tomorrow. So thank you for everything that you are providing today and all the brainstorming you're doing. So let's see, next steps would be, Rexy will be putting us into groups. Like I said, you'll have one of us in each of your groups. And I think Andy, are you still filling in for a facilitator in one group? Yes. You're still available, good. Okay, so one of you will, will uh, have Andy. And uh, we'll take notes for you. Your job is to continue to brainstorm and create ideas and help us fill out this worksheet that will be then made available to you. So questions that you might have from me before I send you to breakout groups. All right, you're gonna have yes, between yes, now. Yes, yes, yes. Good, uh, Joyce, I've sent you a thing in the chat. I, I don't run any organization. I don't work in any organization. I know just about nothing about what you're talking about. I know the terms um, zero, you know, build for zero. I know the terms, um, I, I just know a few of the really, really, really basic terms. So I want to listen. So I, I, I won't be able to contribute anything. I, I just want to listen about people's aspirations. Okay, can we put you in a group and you can listen and um, let yourself be surprised when you do contribute? You probably have some some ideas or, or maybe even some experience that you can share. So, but we're more than happy to have you in a group to listen. All right, anybody that needs to listen, please feel free to go into your groups to do so. We will have you in these groups and uh, for about 45 minutes. And so around 3.30-ish, maybe 3.35. And then when we come back, we will have a very brief time for each group to have a report out. So when you are in your small groups, make sure that you work with your facilitator to decide what you want to have reported out. So you won't have a whole lot of time to do that report out. But we realize that some of you may feel like, well, I missed what the other groups were talking about. So we're trying to give some summaries for what each of the groups are talking about. So, all right, if no other questions, we will launch you and see you again in about 45 minutes. Joyce, real quick, um, just so everybody knows, we are gonna compile all of this and share it with you once the summit's over. Um, so you'll get copies of both what happens today and what happens tomorrow um, in your email inbox. Thank you, Andy. Yep. All right, facilitators ready? Looks like Andy is in room one. I'm just checking to make sure everybody has a facilitator. And Carrie's in room two. And Joyce is in room three. And Megan's in room four. So you all here in the main room, you're stuck with me.
the good news is that we have uh, um, until 3.30, so we have close to 40 minutes to do this. And your conversations this morning should feed some of this work. And in the chat, if you haven't already, you should be able to find the compiled notes from this morning. The areas that we'll be looking at are strengths, opportunities for progress and what's holding us back, aspirations for what a successful environment and initiative looks like, ways to measure results of our efforts. So how would we know if we were making progress and a chance to acknowledge threats? And in general, this will be more productive if we're able to notice things that are short, medium, and long-term. We can start with any of these questions. Who'd like to suggest a place to start? Let's start with strengths. All right, John. It's right at the top of the list. Uh, and I'll just acknowledge I'm a great speller and a terrible typist. So whatever you see that looks like gobbledygook, I'll clean up later. What are some strengths of the current efforts around housing and homelessness in Lawrence Douglas County? So I, I see several strengths. First is the people engaged in the activity. And I won't name anyone specific in case I upset the rest of them. Um, also, I, I think there is across most of the organizations here, a passion to see um, this initiative through and successful. I also think it's worth mentioning that we have this once in a lifetime opportunity, financially speaking. And I think also we have some exceptional um, organizations in our county. What else would you add to this strengths list? I would, I would just add, and, and I think everything that John just mentioned encompasses this. Um, I, I believe Lawrence in particular, Douglas County in general, does an incredible job of managing homelessness. Um, right, rises to the occasion this last winter was a, a prime example of that. We already talked about, you know, the number of ways in which we came together as a community and, you know, made sure that everybody that wanted shelter during the, the cold period of time had a place to go. Managing it. What I'm incredibly encouraged about this whole process is we are moving the needle from simply managing it to being serious about ending it. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that all of the same people 
not just those gathered here today, but everybody in the community that's always stepped up to the plate uh, with a passion to manage homelessness will will have the same passion and and desire to to get on board with us to literally end it. Thank you for that. I would I would maybe add to that list that I I do think that the coordinated entry process is is heading us in the right direction with a lot of really critical agency collaboration. Other things that should uh, go on this list of strengths that you want to acknowledge and leverage? I think we have really um, dedicated and committed grassroots community organizations and community members that are being really intentional about working with community nonprofits, social services, and local government. And I think um, we uh, are strengthened um, and, and advance more quickly because of the efforts of those community groups. Yeah, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but those relationships are not always easy to maintain because those groups often want overlapping but different things and have different priorities. It is fine to come back and add to this. And would you like to move next to aspirations or to opportunities and what's holding us back? One. Le Le Leah, you were the last speaker, which where, where's your energy? Um, well, I'm thinking of opportunities. Well, then let's keep nice going there. <laughs> so where can we make progress and what is holding us back? It's fine to refer to some of those notes this morning. I know there were some gaps and challenges noted this morning. I couldn't get my Word doc to open, but um, I, I mean, I can say that, uh, you know, I think Matthew identified just one of the things holding us back are just caseloads. Just pure and simple, the, the, the manpower to be able to uh, to handle everything. Um, everyone is doing an exceptional job of handling it with the resources that we have, but it, it, it really could help if we had some additional folks out there helping out.
so I might be a bit of a broken record, but I've seen um, a lot of increased collaboration through the efforts with Unified Command um, and looking at housing and um, other human service needs. Um, and I see a lot of potential um, in being able to continue that really strong collaboration into recovery um, and beyond. Um, I, I've been thinking about a conversation that I had over two years ago now after we had a um, community conversation on homelessness. And after that community conversation, a group of us, most um, all of who are in this summit today, came together and talked about, well, what is needed next? And um, we identified that really our community needs a comprehensive community plan for ending homelessness, reducing homelessness connected to affordable housing and other um, infrastructure and other issues. And we still have not gotten to a place where that has been developed. And so even in the last conversation, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, from people's vantage points, this is what we need based on my vantage point or my program or my population that I'm working with. But we still don't have a really comprehensive strategic plan where each of us are sort of plugging in our work and where we can see the progress that we're making as a community. Um, and I think that that's something that's holding us back because we continue to look at it from our, our own vantage point as opposed to a comprehensive community um, issue where when opportunities like this come up, we can say, oh, well, we have a plan and this is how we can use this new funding to really fuel our plan. Instead, we're always in the situation of, okay, where are our priorities? How do we leverage the funding? And I feel like it really trips us up and hampers progress. That is such a good point. Moving from that, that mindset of being reactive to proactive is, but, but we haven't been able to in the last year you know, to be able to do that because we really have had to just react to everything that's been happening. So to actually kind of have this, this, this moment where we can kind of shift from, from reactive to proactive is, is healthy. <laughs> yeah, it's that um, interesting idea of what creates enough productive heat to make progress possible. And maybe this is one of those moments, um, which doesn't mean, Leah, that two years ago when you said this, you weren't right. Where else do you see opportunity or do you see things that might be holding us back? And, oh, please go ahead. Uh, so I managed the coordinated entry system for 101 counties and we are doing great, amazing work um, and especially in Douglas, which is uh, one of the regions that are most advanced in my opinion. Um, however, for the coordinated entry system, I have, including myself, three dedicated staff to coordinated entry to cover 101 counties. So I have no staff in Douglas, which is one of our biggest areas with the most need to do the ISPADATS to, to 
do our remote VI spinets that we're working with KDADS with for, um, to doing data entry, to uploading them, to referring them. I have no dedicated staff. Um, Tucker is amazing and he's doing amazing, but the work he does for coordinated entry is out of the goodness of his heart um, because he believes in this work. Um, so, so that, in my opinion, is holding us back because I don't have a person to dedicate to Douglas fully. Um, and Shanae, at the risk of stating the obvious, what is the result of that? Uh, well, as of right now, um, we did, uh, Tucker, Bert Nash did a massive amounts of VI spadats when we had the winter shelter. Um, they volunteered to go over there. Um, we've been picking up a lot of remote VI spadats in Douglas, um, but we're honestly behind in entering those VI spadats in the system and therefore connecting them to agencies that have availabilities for that. Um, because again, it, Bert Nash is doing whenever they can squeeze it in around their normal work and that I'm also covering 101 counties with my three staff. So, so we're working on all that together and we're doing what we can with what we got, but it's honestly slowing down the connections directly from clients to programs, unfortunately. Thank you for that. Hey, and this is Missy, and I'm going to weigh in on that piece because I'm part of the work that's being done with coordinated entry. So one of the other issues that we have, and I 100% agree with Shanae, we've got to have somebody who can get on the team with the COC specific to Douglas County. Um, if COVID has taught us anything, it's taught us that those numbers are extremely high as far as call-ins and referrals. And the other thing that we're gonna miss out on is accurate data. So when we talk about sustainability, if we have the COC falling behind because of not enough staff, some of those data sets are gonna be skewed when it comes time for them to report numbers. And those numbers is what helps us get future funding and sustainability for the current projects that we have that are going, that are working. Thank you, Missy. Aaron, anything to add in there? I guess one of the areas, and I'm going to go kind of back to my, my previous life working with the prisons. I know as a discharge planner, I struggled with getting clients connected from the prison back into Lawrence specifically, more so maybe than some of the other counties, unless they're in you know, far western Kansas. Um, and these were clients that were homeless prior to prison, maybe spent a year or two with us, and they're going back out homeless um, in some fashion or other. So unless we are able to get them connected to Oxford, which was pretty few and far between, or they went right to inpatient treatment. And a lot of them did go back out to street homeless or living with some more undesirable people just 
as a place to rest their head. Thank you. And Jill, I see that you've been able to rejoin us. We're- Yeah, I'm really sorry. Oh, uh, no, please. Uh, we are currently talking about what are opportunities and what might be holding us back as part of mapping out this SWAT and SOAR document. So again, it's fine to bounce around. And when you think of something we missed, let's by all means go back. We've got all the way till 3.30. But let me suggest we switch to some aspirations. And uh, we've heard some bold things stated today. It's fine to restate those. But what does a successful housing and homelessness related environment or initiative look like for Lawrence Douglas County? Well, I would say just in general, to me, what it looks like is that we've actually reached functional zero, uh, which, as everybody knows, doesn't mean we no longer have any homeless people walking on the streets, but we do have a path in place, no matter who, no matter what, there, there is a path in place for anybody who wants out of that um, to, to, to get out of it. So, I mean, that's the goal, isn't it? Functional zero. Feels right and important to me. And, and we have to add to that, that we haven't just reached it and let's have a big party, but we understand the sustainability aspect of that as well. You can leave the party part out. <laughs> All right, but I, I hope I'm invited anyway. <laughs> I know I, I jumped in um, uh, just as Erin was speaking, but I, I heard her uh, mention some of the challenges around um, folks that are being released from um, correctional facilities and specific to Douglas County. And um, I just, and, and specifically Oxford houses as a um, looking at, at the use as those as a model that perhaps we could pursue a bit more in terms of a um that's one thing that i know that the county is looking at as an aspiration in our role our work of trying to expand supportive housing um opportunities and in the community if we know that that is a need um how we can utilize the most low barrier um and supportive and, and affordable, because affordable in my mind is a sustainability. Um, if 
it's going to be funded um, through local government, even state and federal government partners. Um, Oxford House models um, are an expansion of those is an aspiration for us. I know it's something that we're just starting to understand at, at the county level in terms of how we expand supportive housing in the community. Um, so an aspiration for us is that we do have more supportive housing, uh, whether longer term uh, supportive housing opportunities for folks in the community that could transition to more permanent opportunities um, and independent living um, that really fulfill that recovery mindset for folks. But um, those are the aspirational things that I'm thinking of. In my perfect world, there is a list of landlords who are just waiting to receive referrals for rapid rehousing. Um, that's, that would be what I, cause, cause then you've, you've got that, that flow chart of how the system works. You, you come in in this space and it's not taking two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to find an available unit. It's okay. We have the funds. We've got everything in order here. We've got a place. And right now it's not working like that, but in my perfect world, there's a whole list of landlords just waiting to, to get that call that, that somebody's ready to move into their unit. I would second that in that so that social workers and case managers aren't spending their time trying to do the work that should just be make good business sense for landlords. <laughs> Agreed. That that ties into the, you know, the, the challenges piece about the caseloads. It's it's all tied together. Yeah. So one aspirational goal I would like to see is um, I'm going to be optimistic, ending generational poverty so that if we can affect positively the parents today, and I have seen this, we can more significantly affect the children in terms of their ability to learn, be educated, get good paying jobs, etc., etc. And that there are opportunities for every person in our community along this continuum, whether it's transitional housing, permanent supported housing, or permanent affordable housing, um, that every single person has a home um, in some way or another. And it, it, yeah, I mean, it, I, I don't, um, you know, it, we need more affordable housing in our community as well. Um, and I guess as another aspiration that no child would experience homelessness or houselessness. And that that's something I want to look at as well as, you know, the, the trauma that is incurred from not just staying at a shelter environment, but from couch surfing or living in a car or any of those situations that aren't technically defined as homelessness, um, but in which children are, um, you know, just experience mass amounts of trauma. And Leah, I would be remiss if I didn't share that I've been off the, the meeting for the last hour because I was taking what I think is our last group through Operation Breakthrough 
which is a model that we're looking to adapt for Lawrence Douglas County in terms of a two-generational interrupter of poverty, it, uh, interrupting those cycles of poverty for families that are on a daily, hourly basis experiencing trauma, homelessness, um, and how we can truly interrupt those. So connect, making these connections to homelessness just being a symptom of larger of other needs in the community that we can we really can adapt some adopt some solutions to I really appreciate the capacity you all are showing for this kind of larger adaptive thinking and recognizing that um, what's exciting and what's challenging here is how much these things overlap. We don't have to get super specific here, but we are looking for some ideas that would help to jumpstart work tomorrow. When you think about those aspirations, what are some metrics or indicators that would show we were making progress? I mean, I would say maybe the the time between somebody fills out a, a VI spadat and the time that they're housed. I mean, that's something that's measurable. We we measure it in our department with uh, building permits. How long does it take from when somebody submits an application to, you know, when they get their their ability to to start their development? So um, that's a simple one that'll that'll give you results. So. You also, number of landlords. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You also want to um, measure recidivism rates. So after you've provided a service, a homeless service, did they become homeless again at what percentage? Mm -hmm. I was going to say, um, I'm not sure the, the right metric exact metric, but something related to what Danny talked about with, you know, number of landlords that are willing to accept what number of landlords participating in um, rapid rehousing programs, um, accepting Section 8 vouchers, um, uh, offering rents at that, um, the AMI um, uh, level that we're looking for. Can we go a little deeper with that one? Can we also include um, landlord retention? How many landlords? Are, increasing the number of landlords is important, but if we're increasing by 10 and losing eight, we're not getting very far. Absolutely. And I think that that's where that, that landlord liaison position is going to be so critical. That's, you know, bringing landlords into the program and, and, keeping them there. Um, so I, I think it, I mean, you could add a result too that we continue to find funding for that particular position. I think that that's going to show that it was successful in the first place because it's one-time funding and it's critical that, that we'll be able to continue that. So Danny, did I hear you correctly earlier mention that that's actually a position the city is trying to hire for right now? It's actually the housing authority. 
Um, the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority was the applicant to ESG for that. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a uh, position for the actual liaison and there's also a uh, pot of money for landlord incentives. Gotcha. But yes, they, they are actively recruiting for that yeah. position. So it's beyond aspirational, at, at least. Yes, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah. saying um, sustain. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, I was just trying to. Yeah, yeah, no, that's how understand. That's not, that's not a, 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 a want down, down the road. It's, it's actually happening today. Yeah, that was, that was something wonderful that came from Jill. So Good. He, she saw it in another community and, and kept it for quite a while and then brought it to us when the funding came down. So So I guess from a state level, one of the things I would like to add, which is a metrics to be able to measure the homelessness stuff, we have a huge problem with people exiting institutions that are high risk consumers, meaning they're violent, meaning they're aggressive, um, whether it be from Department of Corrections, but we have seen in programs that we've ran through Department of Corrections that we can reduce that recidivism rate, which impacts the county court systems and law enforcement, the mental health centers, every system that they touch, if they can have sustainable housing. So it's kind of that Maslow's hierarchy of need, but being able to measure the law enforcement contacts, the court, how many people were put into court for felony convictions due to what could in fact be a mental health psychosis episode. So just another, thing to throw out. Kind of piggybacking off of what was just stating. So working with the high risk part of this. Well, and, and I would say uh, what. Working, working with this uh, high risk population takes a specific skill set that case managers need. Um, so also assessing how many of our case managers are trained with de-escalation and um, housing first methods and um, crisis intervention trainings, um, housing case management specifically as well. Um, so how many of them are given the tools to assist this high risk population is, is a good one to measure as well. And we had a little crosstalk. Did we leave anybody behind? I guess for the sake of getting people connected, this kind of builds on what was just said. Is it worth the investment connecting with those consumers prior to them releasing and building those reports prior to release instead of the initial contact being when they walk into your office? I mean, because there's staff there that can do that. That's a great idea. If if we're going to put prior to the release, can we also put prior to discharge? Because when we're looking at the system as a whole, we're looking at emergency rooms. We're looking at state hospitalizations. We're looking at state hospital step-down units. So those are actually, I probably receive more calls for assistance with those that type of a consumer 
then I actually do the corrections consumer. And as it was stated earlier, the aging population's numbers are increasing. We have just a few minutes left. Um, I do wanna see what you'd like to add to this idea of threats to successful housing and homelessness efforts. So I, I want to preface this comment by saying how much I really love uh, and the population we work with, I enjoy them. But I think sometimes we have to deal with the 800 pound gorilla in the room. One of the biggest threats, especially with private landlords is damage to property. Um, I've known a number of landlords that were keen, they were excited and, um, and then there was damage to property damage to the environment such as you know um uh what's the word um such as people coming uh, having disruptive behavior and so a number of landlords have come to me over time and say we we wanted to do section eight but um these were two things we experienced and we're not moving forward I would say a threat is just discrimination um, of different parts of the uh, different neighborhoods, different parts of the city from a neighborhood perspective and, you know, perceived real or perceived um, um, real and real or perceived perceptions of people experiencing homelessness. Um, I, I, think we were really careful in the way that we approached the Camp Woody project in that we spoke to the neighborhood association very early before we even about the concept and to see how they would respond. Um, and while they were supportive of it at the very beginning, that was just, that wasn't a majority of the neighborhood. Um, so I think just the community allowing the expansion of more housing first opportunities in the community and whether that's hotels that are refurbished or individual individual units transitional um, neighborhoods have to accept them One or two others. Thank you for naming things that might be a little impolite to say. Mm -hmm. In a few minutes, we're gonna be asked to share with the larger group a couple or three things that uh, either are really important to this group or we think might have come up in this group and not likely in others. Uh, and I'm going to be primarily responsible for that. What would you like me to say? do this but can I can we jump back and add one more thing to the list? we absolutely can't okay. which list the the threats at the very bottom 
um, basically the, uh, I'm not real sure how to word this, but not being able to sustain the programs that, that we've worked so hard to put together after this money is gone. I think that that is a real threat to. So I think you're in the right place. Yeah, yeah no. I, I, I think oh, you need to go down one. Yeah. I'm not, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I just didn't jump in there quick enough before. <laughs> I'm glad to get it. Before we moved on, so. I just want to echo that <laughs> I've been standing here thinking of the same thing. Um, and, you know, the other side of the coin is that wages in our community are comparatively so low. Um, it, and the cost of housing is so high compared to our neighboring communities. And so I, I haven't wanted to bring in sort of the aspect of wages, but I don't know how we talk about you know, sustainably, um, it's sustainable, affordable housing without that piece of it. What do you want to make sure the other groups hear from your conversation, knowing that everybody will have the reports and not everybody will read the reports? Can you go back to the top again and slowly go through it for us? I will do my best. I'm operating on one tiny screen here. Hey, Seth, I think one of the things when you ask what to share out to the bigger group, I think what, what I've heard in the limited time that I've been back with the group is that um, being, a, being accountable for like being outcomes focused, um, there's a commitment to focus on to, to how are we, how are we going to track performance? What are the results? What, what would success look like in terms of results and outcomes? That we're tracking the vice bidet, um, you know, amount of time it takes to get to the vice bidet, things like that. That those things matter to us, and we want to be ac held accountable to those. We don't just want to do all the things because they're the right things. Um, we want to be smart about it. If that makes sense, I'm not very articulate right now. Thank you for that, Jill. Other ideas about important things to share in the brief time we'll have to report.
And Danny, could you? I think, oh, I sorry. Think the, the statement along the way, opportunities for everyone, uh, has to be pretty close to the top of the list. Seems really important. That one right there. And Danny, could you drop into the chat sometime the name of that application? That's a piece of the lingo that I don't know. Yeah, I think I was talking about the VIs for that. So I will yes. put that in there. <laughs> I've now heard that, I'm assuming, acronym several times, and it still doesn't mean anything to me. And we say it, it's part of our normal everyday conversation. <laughs> yeah, it means um, it's the vulnerability index service decision assistance tool. Do you want to put that in the chat? Yeah. Because I'm Googling it right now. Because <laughs> so, I can, I remember the vulnerability part and then I can never get the rest of it right. And I'm like trying to spell it in my head. And <laughs> you see how slow I had to say it? I mean, I run that system and I'm like, Okay, let me make sure I get every single letter. <laughs> yes, I will. Thank you all. We're going to start having people from other rooms joining us. Thank you for your good work and your patience with me. Thank you. All right, welcome back folks. It looks like we have most people back now. We do have about 20 minutes to do a brief call out. So I'm hoping that within each of your groups, you did talk a little bit about what you wanted to highlight. Um, and so if you don't mind the order, I'm just gonna go down our list of rooms and Rexy, you might have to remind me how many rooms we had because I went in one of them. So um, we had five, got it. Room one, who was room one? So that was my room. <clears throat> and a couple of the highlights that we had was among our, amongst our strengths is the current coordination of services and the greater awareness of need in the community and uh, some of the ground level programming and planning that's already in place as small key components of the overall system. And then for opportunities, um, one of our short-term goals or, or opportunities was to leverage the unified command structure lessons from COVID response. Um, in our midterm area, we talked about securing public sector housing and staffing for programming. Long-term, we talked about the consensus of will between city and county governments um, and building and purchasing permanent housing assets. Um, for aspirations, we talked about um, making sure we had adequate housing stock for 300 units with supportive services. Um, we talked about the need for a central facility for social services hub downtown. Um, and we talked about uh, uh, the downtown Lawrence uh, being a partner in efforts. And then uh, for results, we talked about uh, a clear marked decrease in people camping, panhandling, and chronic homelessness, um, coordinated entry, um, and 
then for threats, we listed um, getting people to all use the same data system, the HMIS, um, avoiding duplicate entry barriers uh, and, and getting your EHRs to maybe talk together. Um, and then caseload and workforce needs. Uh, inflow was a big one that came up too, just to make sure we didn't have a lack of prevention or diversion. So my hope is as you hear some of these call outs, your group might not have, have uh, listed some of these other ideas. So isn't it great that we had five groups to be able to list a lot of these. So thanks Andy. What about group number two? I believe that was my group. I um, think that's right, Brandon. Okay, so if we, uh, yeah, going, going down our list, um, strengths that we highlighted uh, is that we've started already creating a framework of services even um, prior to this meeting over the last year. Uh, the Built for Zero team uh, working within a best practices model um, and the commitment in the community among the providers to make uh, data-informed decisions and prioritization of effort. Uh, opportunities, um, the as a holdback, uh, maybe a barrier to address as an opportunity is the cost of housing um, generally. Uh, we can also um, leverage the willingness to work and collaborate uh, to make change across sectors and agencies. Um, and then just, you know, calling out very clearly the opportunity to build units and to hire skilled, skilled workers to support, provide supportive services. Aspirations that we wanted to elevate. Um, we want to, uh, we aspire to have robust prevention systems um, and also units that uh, are scattered throughout the community that can serve um, diverse populations. Um, and uh, we, you know, we talked a little bit about um, different types of units such as uh, maybe tiny homes. Um, and we also talked about uh, the NIMBY or more positively the YIMBY, yes, in my backyard. Um, sort of mentality. Uh, so, you know, that's just to say that we want the community to see that that programs are working and to have a snowball effect of support. Um, and then finally, no one, uh, as an aspiration, no one would be in shelter or in an unsheltered situation uh, for um, a, a certain time period. So that would be, you know, capped at 60 days, 90 days, something like that. Uh, Results that we identified um, were the uh, actually um, as a need still is to develop good um, emergency service metrics. Um, some of our data systems don't really help us identify um, those calls for service related to somebody experiencing um, mental health, behavioral health addiction crisis, or um, uh, somebody who is experiencing homelessness. And so the ability to measure our success um, uh, would be would would be benefited by um, developing some some of those emergency response metrics, and then um, positively impacting uh, con continuing to positively impact the recidivism rates. Uh, threats we identified the lack of long term sustained funding. Um, we you know we need a we need a structurally balanced uh, long term uh, uh, plan for how we're going to fund any any sort of investments. Uh, low wages and um, specifically economic development uh, and the, the lack of e economic development opportunity uh, could be a threat. And then um, uh, 
actually in, in the, that was the last one for us. Um, so just, you know, talking about the, the, the best way to prevent um, somebody from becoming homeless uh, really isn't, e you know, has, has economic uh, implications. And so as we raise, wa raise wages, we improve the situation for everyone. Great. Thanks, Brandon. It's really interesting to see how one person's opportunity is somebody else's threat and where you all put your ideas um, across the board is, is uh, going to be interesting. I was part of group three, a room three, and was instructed to read all of them. So I'm not going to do that, but um, I, there's some passion in, in that room uh, around some pretty great ideas. So just to highlight some of the strengths, you know, if I look through the list that was uh, created, which is long, actually, um, some key words that I'm seeing are collaboration and coordination seems to be uh, pretty high with a long history of doing that in uh, this community and county, um, including people being engaged uh, from lots of different sectors. So law enforcement being engaged and trained city and county being uh, fully engaged and financially supportive, lots of, of uh, working professionals and citizens who also are engaged and at the table, including today. Um, also some willingness to think creatively and outside of the box for solutions. Um, and then the community is also engaged by being able to place like social work students and, and um, let's see. Lawrence being committed to uh, built for zero planning. Um, and then also, uh, sorry, back on the consumer movement uh, that's been very strong for decades that they also help create the Lawrence Drop-In Center. On opportunities, uh, data sharing across organizations was stated as a long-term one, given that there's lots of different systems uh, being used. Um, there's an opportunity for more advocacy and education so that everyone understands the who uh, is impacted in this work around homelessness and advocating with our representatives and developers and city and county and others who might, some of whom might, might not understand the housing situation and the difficulty in accessing resources. Um, tiny house community uh, was both an intermediate uh, answer uh, to this more affordable housing issue long-term. So that did come up in this room, a central location where people can go for help and hope, which is more short-term because there are uh, some of those efforts at play now. Uh, being a model community for other communities in Kansas and then more collaboration with the faith community. Some other aspirations to have one data system that all could use successful permanent housing exit. Once people are housed, they can stay there and not be evicted a real continuum of housing opportunities and supports, um, an in-depth, intense, long-term supportive services, more employment programs, more Oxford houses in Lawrence, and living wage jobs. Some of the measurements, um, numbers of people who are getting into housing, the percent of new affordable housing units, reducing intermittently experienced uh, homelessness, um, increasing the number of business owners and community members and non-social service folks who are uh, not only engaged, but also impacted in various ways. Looking at numbers on recidivism, ER use, and reduction in the number of people who die homeless. 
And then threats that were acknowledged were a flux in funding, whether that's federal, state, county, foundation, and private funding and donations. Um, a long-term fear of social services by, sorry, a, a fear of social services by the long-term homeless or some of them who might not feel um, safe or good about accessing those services. The, uh, I think it was brought up, Brandon said, not in my uh, neighborhood mentality, changing that. And then the fact that the homeless population can be very mobile and a potential threat that if you increase services here, you might attract more who need services. All right, that was group three. How about group four? All right, so group four, we um, kind of, there is some talk about a little bit of everything in my notes. So the, um, there was no specific really order, but um, really next steps are uh, um, accountability and best practices need to be uh, developed across the community um, in the serviceability of the homeless. Um, homeless voices really need to be included in the process and proposals. This is a necessity because they're the ones that are being affected by this. Um, and something that was talked about a lot was more detailed explanations on what people can do because current responses when um, organizations are like, I, you know, I want to help, how can I help? The responses that they receive from other organizations are pretty vague. And they're like, but what are we trying to do? What can I do to help move us forward? So being more um, explicit in how you explain it to people. Um, Really, and um, one of the biggest um, short-term things that we talked about was workforce development. Training is essential to ending homelessness, but it can also cost a large portion of the fiscal budget. And um, so we really need to look at training for both uh, um, clients as well as for um, providers. And... Um, Something that really stuck out to me was um, housing first, the housing first model is one option, but programs shouldn't be limited to that one option. There need to be other um, models available, other options available. Um, because yes, it's first, but it, or it, it's good, but it might not work well for everybody. Um, one of the big issues is staffing. Um, there's not enough people to do the job, um, and there's not enough funds to pay the amount of people that you will need for the job. Um, that is, that was made clear, especially with COVID, because you don't have as many people in your shelter, but at the same time, you're having to make house calls because people are able to stay in their home, and so the, um, you know, the gas money and all of that, it just, it gets expensive. Um, also, long-term goals really require a commitment from both staff and clients. Um, and caseworkers and other staff, there can be high turnover in uh, um, this type of position. So um, how can we make sure that we stick to our long-term goals if the staff aren't always there? Um, and then the necessity, really one of the things that um, really stuck out was the necessity to be honest with the community. Um, this really is a short-term program, but the community is going to have to help in order to make it a successful long-term program. Um, 
and the need for wraparound support systems, training, workforce development, um, local communities taking responsibility for the ongoing programs. Um, communication between those programs is essential. And uh, um, donor education, making sure that donors understand where their money is going and why it is important that their money is going there. And then um, the biggest one that stuck out to me was ec economic development is a necessity because with better paying jobs, um, transportation, childcare, healthcare, um, and the increased corporate giving capacity, um, you will see the increased economic development and more people are in stable housing. And that is it. Great. Thanks, Megan. All right, group five. And I'm going to speak for group five. And because we were on video, you can go back and watch our whole conversation. And of course, you'll have the notes. So let me just point out uh, three things that really stood out for our group. Uh, one is this aspiration of opportunities for everyone in the community along the continuum of housing so that everyone has, a, every person has a home in some way. That was an aspiration that really stood out. Something that I thought um, I really heard in this group that might be a little different uh, or in addition to what I heard in this other report, these other reports, where that this is a group that said outcomes really matter to us and we want to be smart about how we go about things and be held accountable for results. And uh, they had a really good list of potential metrics. Uh, one example, um, uh, really measuring the time between filling out the vulnerability index. Uh, so I learned the term VI SPDAT and the time when applicants are housed. Uh, they really want to um, be held accountable for progress in those ways. And a threat that I heard voiced in this group was not being able to sustain programs that have started and continuing to pay attention to that. Great, thank you. So we have just a couple of minutes right now. I'm wondering if there was something that one of the groups mentioned that somebody else had a question about, like you wondered, what did you mean by that, et cetera. All right, so hopefully everything was fairly clear. Uh, thanks, Megan, for one more post there. Yeah. So, I, yes. hello, Joyce. Yeah. Um, I, I think that each service provider, uh, I want to think about clients and also people that they would employ to build housing, et cetera, or to, okay, there are clients who are homeless and then there are employees who help the homeless, okay? Those two sets of people. Um, I, I'm i not coming up with an answer, I'm coming up with a problem here and that is the undocumented folk. And I hope that every one of you consider how can you involve undocumented folk without uh, the feds cutting off your funds or something, that's all. I knew you could contribute, <laughs> Catherine, thank you. <laughs> all right, any other thoughts or questions? Okay, two things then. Um, Andy, I'm gonna invite you back to uh, the front of the room metaphorically with me uh, for two things. One is, could you um, 
reiterate about the listening session tonight. And if you have the link now, that would be great to post that. And then secondly, can we talk a little bit about tomorrow for those of you that are staying on for tomorrow, um, what we're hoping to accomplish in that space about you know, building this framework? Yeah, so I'm gonna um, grab the link here so I can put that in the chat box. Um, so that's the Zoom link. Um, we're going to be um, meeting at the uh, um, community health building um, in the meeting rooms there at 200 Main Street. Uh, but if anybody wants to join us online, you're welcome to do that uh, and just kind of continue the conversations we've had um, with more uh, uh, voices of lived experience. Um, and this is really a, a listening session that we are trying to do so that, um, you know, I can hear from people in the community and, and take that message back to Kate ads. Um, so I, I invite you guys to participate. Um, tomorrow, um, we're going to take the work that we did today and we're going to start applying that to a framework. And so what We'll have uh, Sam Sanders will come in the morning and we'll talk about housing first. Um, we'll have um, an opportunity for us to um, dig a little deeper about what other things need to be included in the framework besides just housing first. And then we'll also focus on um, kind of flushing out that framework so that it's in, in a more polished state uh, when we leave for the day. Um, but all in all, I think today we did a lot of really great work and um, tomorrow's group is going to be a little bit smaller, but I think we'll have um, a lot of opportunity to really take what we learned today from the community and apply that um, in, in our planning tomorrow. Great. Um, Andy, and if there's somebody on our team that can just repost an agenda for those that are staying tomorrow so they can see that. So there will be a little bit more time, as Andy said, to, to explore some of these ideas. And I think Andy, on one of our calls, planning calls, you said this is sort of planning for, for the plan. Right, um, yeah. you, you may or may not walk out with a complete framework, you know, complete plan, but um, you'll be pretty close, right? A lot of things will be flushed out by then, so. Yeah, yeah we so, do. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, we, we do expect that, you know, tomorrow, you're going to leave with basically like almost like an outline, right? That continued work by the community to flush that outline out or, or build the framework can lead to a, a, an organized proposal, right? And that's that's our hope is, is that we're, we're giving you just enough of a shot in the arm to get started, that your work will continue. Um, and, uh, you know, if the community wants to invite us back at some point for further dialogue, I'm happy to do that. But we really, um, you know, we really want you to present with us to us what your ideas are and what you'd like to see. Great, thank you. So for those of you who were curious, we are trying to compile every bit of work you are doing today and be able to send it out to you. So whatever email address you gave us when you signed up to attend, you should get the information at that email. Um, is there a different link for the 6 to 7 p.m. meeting? So that link, if you'll look in the chat. I just re 
Oh, I see what happened there. I'm sorry, I'm only sending it to Seth. That's the problem. <laughs> I thought you just liked me best. Right, there we go. Now it's available for everybody. So there's your link. All right, um, for anybody that's attending today, any final questions? Any of the facilitation team, any final comments or thoughts to give to participants for tomorrow? Yeah, I'll just say thank you guys for your coming today and participating. I think our turnout was really great and we came up with a lot of really good stuff today. So um, I appreciate the effort everybody put in and the time you've dedicated to this cause today. Thank you. Thanks so much. We look forward to seeing those of you that will be back with us tomorrow. Have a good evening. Thank you, friends. Good work. Bye, everyone. Great work today. Thank you, everyone.